3: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Leftset's Podcast. My guest today is the truly legendary one-of-a-kind, the one and only Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Ian, so glad to have you on the podcast. Big fan.
4: Well, it's just a pleasure to be here, and thank goodness there is only one of me, the one and only. Imagine, imagine if there were two of me. I mean, People would be recoiling in horror at that screeching flute permeating every fabric of their being. It would be... God, even worse than it already is. I, I frankly have always discovered that um, audiences are seduced during a live performance into thinking I quite like the flute, but in reality, it's a horrible, horrible noise. I mean, it's okay for a few minutes, but for two hours, goodness me, I'm surprised they actually remain in the uh, in the venue. I have my cats like the flute, my dogs run a mile, my wife runs a mile, and 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 she's an elderly lady.
3: But uh, you know, James Galway, he uh, says that he has played with you. He's a big flautist.
4: Well, you know, he's um, he's a big flautist, but he's a he's a damned liar. We've, we never played together. We were supposed to play together in a concert somewhere in the USA, and he was he was performing at the same place the night after we were on, and so we met up, and I'd sent him some music. We were going to he was going to come up on stage, and we were going to play together. And, um, you know, I like, to think, I like to think he would have done it if it wasn't for the fact that he was a bit exhausted and jet-lagged and, and probably a bit overwhelmed with the idea of being on a stage with noisy people, and it was out of his comfort zone. So I think, frankly, he chickened out. But um, we, we've always talked about doing something together, and uh, on the one and only occasion when we could have done, um, he, um, he chickened out he just didn't show up for sound check so it was a bit embarrassing but anyway i i mean i'm i'm in touch with james from time to time elderly gentleman and uh, in the twilight years uh, just a, just a little bit ahead of me but not too much but one of his proteges andrea griminelli who james uh, was uh, was a, a tutor to um, he uh, he and i have played together many times and in fact we played played together in uh, at the Vatican Christmas concert, just before Christmas, I played with, uh, with Andrea Griminelli and he's a, a brilliant soloist, classical flute player, and a um, you know, very nice and gentlemanly guy who who's a huge, you know, has a huge relationship, great fan of James Galway, and we, we, um, we uh, often chat about it and our mutual experiences. But that's classical music. That's not what I do. I am just the um, I am just the the class clown who sits at the back and makes rude noises.
3: Well, uh, without being too self deprecating, how do you rate your flute playing?
4: Well, the thing is that you know I, I began as a guitar player, not as a flute player. So I was, as a teenager, you know, struggling to try and learn to play a few notes of essentially what were blues improvisation. And then when I was um, nineteen, maybe eighteen or nineteen, I heard Eric Clapton, who just joined. John Mayle's Blues Breakers and um, that famous album cover where Eric Clapton is reading a, a children's comic called The Beano. And when I heard Eric Clapton, I thought, oh, th- this is um, this is an object lesson in in um, finding something else to play as a musical instrument. So I set about finding a, an alternative and I traded in my trusty Fender Strat for a you know, which is probably worth today. I mean, it's a 1960s Strat. that belonged to Lemmy. Lemmy of of Motorhead was the previous owner when he was a rhythm guitarist in Reverend Black and the Rocking Vickers, a rock band. How did you get the Strat from Lemmy? Uh, well, I he he was broke, so he had to sell it, and I um, I took on the the debt, if you like, and so I I I got this this instrument and played it for a year. So and um, and then traded it in for a, a thirty dollar flute. It was a, a basic student model flute, and seemed because uh, that guitar today probably, you know, being a real genuine vintage 60s Strat to a Japanese collector would probably be worth you know thirty grand, forty grand, maybe if you add in the fact that it used to belong to me and before that it belonged to Lemmy. So. It doesn't seem like a very good deal, you know, to to part with that and then take on a $30 flute by way of exchange. But I think it's probably one of the best business investments I could possibly have made, as it turned out.
3: But of all the instruments, the keyboards, the sax, the drums, why the flute?
4: I, well uh, there was no sensible reason whatsoever i went went to trade in my guitar and i looked around on the walls of the music store and the sun it had been raining it was a dreary day i remember in uh, in a place called lytham in lancashire in in the north of england and suddenly the sun came out and shone through the window of the music store and glistened on the uh, on a on something that was hanging on the wall which was a flute and it just beckoned, it just said buy me. And I had no idea how to play a flute. It just seemed like a nice, shiny, well-engineered, rather attractive object. You know, and I I have a soft spot for things that are, are good engineering, you know, well-designed, well developed, and, and I, I I just thought this looked like it was a sort of musical Swiss watch, really. So um, I said, I'll have that with no idea how to play it. And I I walked out with a flute, which um, for the next few months, I I couldn't get a note out of. And um, somebody finally told me, it's like blowing across the top of a a Coca-Cola bottle. You know, you blow it at the right angle, it makes makes a, a, a musical note. And that finally dawned on me. I got the flute, I think, in August of 1967, and somewhere in mid-December, I actually managed to get a note out of this flute. It was a note of G, and then I found a note of E, and then A, and B, and then I had the blues scale. So by the beginning of January, when Jethro Tull actually became Jethro Tull, I was able to play, not only just to play a little bit of flute, but to play improvised blues solos, because I just... Translated what I thought I knew from guitar playing into into the flute, even though I didn't know the proper fingering, and um, I was just you know m- making loud noises to try and equal the the impact of the electric guitar in the band. But it it worked out pretty well, and I, I think I I think I probably by February March people were beginning to talk about Jethro Tull, not just as another blues band, but a blues band with a guy who played the flute standing on one leg, which seemed to catch on in a way with the media and as a, as a kind of an image, as a logo. It, it, um, it From that day onwards, we were a little different to Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack and Fleetwood Mac and, and the other blues bands of that era that also played at the famous Marquee Club in London.
3: Okay. All over the web, it says that your daughter... Picked up the flute, and then you ultimately learned you were using the long wrong fingering and had to relearn it. Is that apocryphal or is that a real story?
4: No, it's a real story. She she asked me when she was at at school. I guess she was about eight years old or something, and said, "Oh, we 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 we've got to learn to play a musical instrument. You know, can I? Is there something that you've got that I could borrow to um to play?" And I said, "Well, you know, I've got a drum kit. I've got saxophones. I've got you know a whole bunch of stuff, but." you know, maybe the flute is the easiest one. And um, so I gave her a flute, one of my old stage flutes, and I made sure that it kind of played okay. And she took it to school and um, she came back and had some little book, you know, how to play the flute, um, chapter one. And it was was musical notation, which means nothing to me. But she was um, playing through a few notes and and I ventured to say, look, actually, when you're playing this note, um, you know, do it like this. And she um, and she looked at where my fingers were on the instrument. She said, well, that, that, that's not what it says in the book, Daddy. That's not where you're supposed to put your little finger on the right hand. So I said, rubbish. <laughs> but of course, she was right. It was I'd been all that time. This is somewhere around about 1989 or something. Um, I'd been doing it wrongly for all that time. and. It was a bit embarrassing, but um, I I then actually went off to to, uh, Bombay, Mumbai. Although it was still Bombay at that time. And it was the day after the Air India bombings in Mumbai. And I arrived to do a preordained press conference before we knew about the terrorist attack. So I was about the only foreigner in town. Everybody had fled. And so I had the entire press and media of... uh, um of Mumbai came to my press conference because they had nothing else to do there was nobody else to talk to and as a result we, um, we we chatted about various things and when I was back in my hotel room oddly there was a fax machine because my hotel was right next to the one that got blown up and um, there was a fax machine in my room and I thought hmm I'll um, I'll uh, phone one of the music stores in London and see if they can fax over to me a, a flute fingering chart to show me the, all the fingering positions for the different notes which they did and uh, i looked with horror at the end result and thought that is going to be you know very very difficult for me to relearn at this point in my life in you know, almost 20 years after i had first played the flute and to begin with i was so daunted by it i thought oh no i'll just stick with what i've got but it kept luring me back in with the idea that I should try and do it properly. And um, so I, it took me about six months, really, to incorporate the correct fingering into my well, performances on stage because, of course, I got set in my ways and took a while to, to make the adjustment. But it was worthwhile because it then gave me the, uh, the scope to play uh, at a more... Controllable different volume levels and 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 somewhat more in tune than I had been, so it worked out pretty well. And then I moved from playing closed hole flutes, where all the keys are covered, which is kind of easy for beginners, to playing open open hole flutes, which allow you to kind of slur notes and bend notes a little bit like playing a blues guitar. And uh, so I made all that transition really in 1990, I guess, and. Um, And uh, I never looked back, except to uh, wonder why on earth I hadn't learned to play it properly in the first place.
3: Okay, you mentioned you gave your daughter a road flute from the stage. What would be the difference between a road flute and a flute you keep at home and use in the studio? Uh,
4: Monetary value, basically, because you know when you're traveling around the world and you're, you're apart from the fact that you're your flutes are gonna be subject to a certain amount of wear and tear. It it it's also you know, you have to leave them in hotel rooms and or if you decide you don't want to leave in a hotel room, you've got to put it round your neck and go off into the depths of some darkened Eastern European town, taking your life and your flute in your hands in order to try and find a good takeaway curry or a you know, or an empty restaurant to eat in and, and, and get mugged along the way. So it it's it's a little nerve wracking. So i d I've never travelled with Flutes of any huge value. I always tend to, I mean, they're kind of intermediate flutes, but frankly, not worth mugging me for. If, if you're going to mug me, take my watch, leave the flute. That's my advice.
3: Now, with most musical equipment and sports equipment, people at the elite level, there's a difference, like a pair of skis or a guitar. This is my favorite. Do you have a favorite flute? Or are they all pretty much sound the same?
4: Well, going back to James Galway, it's an interesting, um, you know, he, he did a, a survey. I mean, he had lots and lots of flutes. I, I mean, I know because I've seen them. He, he showed me the the uh, the cupboard that contains all of his flutes. And I mean, there must have been 20 different flutes in there. And um, he he did a sort of test to try and play them all, one after the other, playing exactly the same piece of, you know, quite complex classical music. And I think he amply demonstrated that there was so little difference in the tonal quality of all of these flutes you know ranging from basically a, an advanced student model flute to a you know 18 karat gold flute that was um, it probably cost him 40 50 grand and um, there was little difference in it and i actually replicated exactly the same thing just a few weeks ago when i knowing that i was starting work on a new album with a lot of flute involved in it that um, i did the same thing i played a few flutes one after the other on the same audio file and listen to them back and uh, you know you could detect a t- tiny little difference but it was much less than it appeared to me when i play the flute you know you because you res- it resonates in your skull as well as the the sound of the the instrument from the uh, the embouchure hole and the the, the 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 sound that comes out of the open tone holes of the flute it sounds more different to you but to a, a high quality microphone, sitting you know 30 centimeters, roughly one foot for you guys, away from your your flute, it, it, it's almost undetectable the difference. and in fact, I was recording something for somebody else it was doing you know, performing a guest thing for some other artist and I, I used uh, I used two different flutes to, to, um, to play the, the, the flute part that was my contribution to his record. And when it came to it, I I realized there was absolutely no difference detectable between when I'd been playing one flute as opposed to, you know, 30 seconds later, I switched to using the other flute. You really couldn't tell. So uh, I don't think there's any great difference when it comes to what you take on the road to play and what you uh, might play because you just like the feel of it or that very subtle nuance that makes one flute different to another. And and I think the same thing obtains really for guitars, which is why I've been utterly amazed and and perhaps a little irreverent in my response to people like my pal Joe Bonamassa, who I remember going backstage and seeing he had about 20 guitars backstage to play a concert at, Hammersmith Odeon in London. And I said, what the hell are all these guitars for, Joe? I mean, what wh- what's it about? I mean, you just need one. You know, you sound great. Well, why do you need all these guitars? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I might decide to play a different one that night or in, in this song, I want to play that one or whatever. And, um, and I, I found it, it was quite amusing, you know, but I, I had to take the mickey out of him because he was, uh, like many guitarists, you know, it's a mark of how how great your stature is in the firmament of guitar players as to how many guitars you take on tour and how many guitar roadies you have to employ to change the strings and tune them up for you, which is the antithesis of life in Jethro Tull. Guitar players take one guitar and they change their own strings and they tune them up by themselves and nobody is allowed to touch them because it's your precious instrument. Last thing you want to do is give it to some roadie to... to. uh, handle and smear his bodily juices over the strings when he's probably not washed his hands when he's been to the toilet. So nobody touches my flute. Nobody touches my guitar. And the rest of the guys in the band are exactly the same. You know, we, we, our, our instruments are the tools of our trade. I often say, you know, if you, if you were a cop and, and, and you had a, you know, a nine millimeter Glock, glock strapped to your your, 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 your your waist and, you know, would you allow somebody else to clean it to load it to check it and make sure it was ready to roll when it's a matter of life and death potentially that that thing is going to work for you if you should need it and i think it's the same thing with with musical instruments you 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 should take on the responsibility of looking after them yourself because it is life and death out there if you pick it up and it doesn't it's out of tune or it string breaks or something it's um you are going to die a horrible death on stage in front of thousands of people and look like a complete turkey. Okay,
3: so how does Ian Anderson know Joe Bonamassa? I mean, I know Joe, and he's a very open, friendly guy. But you have a reputation as being somewhat outside. But in reality, do you know and connect with a lot of musicians? Or was there a unique story with Bonamassa? What's your relationship with uh, other musicians?
4: Well, I I do connect in the sense of there are a number of people that I've met and I've known, some of whom I've played with, but it's probably less than 20 in 50-something years. I I know Joe because uh, our agent um, said as a suggestion for an opening act that I was this young kid who's um, a bit of a whiz kid making a name for himself and you know, could he come and do some shows with Jethro Tull And, and added... Apprehensively, Uh, and he actually plays one of your songs during his his set. He's a a bit of a Jethro Tull fan, so I said, "Yeah, well, okay." And I I think I must have checked out some something on long before YouTube, but probably found something to listen to. And he seemed he reminded me a little bit of Rory Gallagher in the early days because he he was that kind of a shouty singer rather than a, a melodic singer, full of energy, full of youthful vigor
3: great description of rory gallagher
4: yeah and uh, well and and of the young joe bonamassa but you know he, he did some shows with us and he was such a, a nice gentlemanly quiet um really easygoing guy and uh, you know a couple of guys in this band they were they were okay and so it was a, an easy an easy um you know a, a good mix in terms of of somebody to work with for a few days on tour And over the years, I suppose we just kept in touch. But the mature um, Joe Bonamassa is someone who, I think, has evolved beyond the shouty blues. Now, he's a much better singer and a much better guitar player. He has the melodic and the restraint that perhaps you would associate it with with, um, Eric Clapton. Um, To begin with, he he sounded, you know, it was just a little bit too how many notes can you cram into a bar and sound, you know. Um But if you're an opening act, you've got to do that. You've got, you know, thirty-five minutes to structure your stuff and make a name for yourself. You've you've really got to turn on the turn on the taps. But, you know, once you become a, a headline act, you can afford to demonstrate a little taste and restraint and and try and try and make every note count and make the The gap between the notes counts because that's the thing that Eric Clapton always had. You know, he knew the value of the space between the notes. It's like dramatic clouds in the sky, but you see between the clouds a little touch of infinite blue. And it's the space between the clouds, just as the space between the notes in a guitar solo, that give it its shape, its form, its drama, its dynamic range. And I think that's something Joe is... uh, you no, know, in and once he grew up a little bit, that's what he learned to do. Me, on the other hand, I'm still stuck in the old days. I just cram as many notes as I can in.
3: <laughs> okay, you happened to drop curries in there earlier. Although I'm a big Jethro Tolfi, and I was catching up on you, make sure I didn't forget anything. And it said, you're a big Indian food expert. Now in America, I remember the Ramones talking about vindaloo. I didn't even know what it was. There are a lot of Indian restaurants in America today, but nothing like the curry shops in the UK. So, give us a primer on Indian food. People who are unknowledgeable, what should they know about Indian food?
4: Well, what they should know about it is that, I mean, apart from the the connection, obviously, the the primary connection between Britain as a as a as a nation who strutted its stuff across the globe and swept people into its, um, its orbit and made such a huge difference, some of it bad, some of it good. We inherited Indian food going back into the 1800s when the very first Indian restaurant opened up in, in London. And um, it really made its mark after partition in India in 1947, the year of my birth, when uh, the Hindus and, and Muslims were split up, when Pakistan was split up into Pakistan as we know it today and Bangladesh, which was um, which was um, was East Pakistan back then, and so many Indians and Bangladeshis and Pakistanis fled the country during the the, the very unpleasant times after the partition and they came many of them to the uk and set up pakistani restaurants bangladeshi restaurants and indian restaurants this was really throughout the 50s and 60s so when i grew up at the the age when i was beginning to play music and travel outside um my hometown then indian food became the it, be, it became what you 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 aspired to as a good night out if you were whether it was on your way back from some some gig somewhere in the north of England and there was some late night Indian restaurant open. I mean, you made a beeline for it because we all had a taste for spicy food. Chinese, I suppose, was the first thing that we knew about in terms of more exotic cuisine. But Indian, that nailed it for, for, for most of us. So I guess it would be very hard to find many British musicians then and now who, A didn't like Indian food and B, hadn't been to art school. So those two things somehow seem to define what is about British musicians that maybe marks us out from the rest of Europe and, and most of the USA. You know, we're all nuts about a good King Prawn Vindaloo and uh, we all we all went to art college to study the creative side of of life that then translated into music.
3: So if someone is going to an indian restaurant tell them how to order
4: well that that happens to me from time to time that somebody says well i'm not sure what i should what i should eat so I just you just ask them a few simple questions well do you like um, do you like food that has a wet sauce or do you like something that is dry and, and not 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 wet do you like something that is kind of spicy, like got a lot of spicy flavours, not necessarily hot, but just the spices? Or do you like something that is relatively bland? And do you like something that is spicy as in hot? Or do you want something that's really mild and and do you eat meat? Do you eat chicken? Do you eat fish? Do you eat shellfish? Do you eat beef? Do you eat lamb? Or do you are you vegetarian? And um, with the benefit of that, you can perhaps direct somebody to something that hopefully is going to be along the lines that, that that might satisfy them. And for people who are perhaps not really sure, then I would recommend something. I mean, assuming you eat chicken, I would say go for a chicken korma. It's a mild, creamy yogurt-based sauce with uh, chicken-boned species of chickens. There's no bone in there. Um, you know that that might satisfy. Um, but if you want something that's you know if you want to just jump in at the deep end, then you know go for the king prawn vindaloo and if you're completely nuts, go for the king prawn fowl, which is the um the legendary hottest of curries and and these days, of course, they're made with the benefit of of chili peppers that have been refined and hybridized in in Arizona and New Mexico. So these days it could be but jiloquia. Or the or the or the the um or the or the Reaper, the you know the 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 hottest chili peppers on planet Earth. I know because I've grown those, and you know one goes an awfully long way in terms of um, spicing up your your supper.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
1: Wait!
2: Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at
2: VisitCalifornia.com.
3: Okay, you mentioned India, you mentioned Britain. I have to ask what is your take on Clapton and his anti vax stance? And what is your stance on Brexit? <laughs>
4: Well, I am afraid to say that people like Van Morrison and, uh, and uh, Eric Clapton, just to name two, in the attitude towards COVID, its effects, and the vaccine. Um, well, I, I am ashamed of what they what they say. It, it really, really, frankly, makes me very angry because it's uh, you would think you would think that they would be bright enough to know better and. There are people who genuinely have a reason not to have the vaccine, but if you're a responsible citizen of planet Earth, then I think you should take the chance and have your double vaccine or your triple vaccine. And I mean, I've actually had five holes in my arm in the last 12 months, three to do with COVID, one for pneumonia and one for, you know, an annual flu vaccine. And I, I hate needles. I mean, I absolutely hate needles. It drives me nuts. And but at the end of the day, three of those five are about are about protecting helping to protect people around me, my family, my friends, or complete strangers. I think it is a bit of a civic duty, frankly, to um bite the bullet, be vaccinated, and much less chance that you could be the person who inadvertently infects somebody else who may be vulnerable, who may end up in hospital, sadly may die, even with Omicron, which is not the pussycat quite that we were hoping for but it's better than nothing and uh, we have to accept that even though infection rates in my country have now seemingly in the last week turned the corner and started to go down I mean they're, they're almost half of what they were two weeks ago um, but our death rates which lag behind the hospitalizations which lag behind infection rates you know are still going up and at the at a rate not quite as high as the worst of 2021, but uh, still worrying. And in your country, you know, you are, as of yesterday, um, pretty close to the the highest uh, daily infection rate that's been recorded. And uh, Omicron is still going up and death rates are still going up. It's, um, you know, we're not out of this yet. And I'm afraid Eric Clapton and others send a an irresponsible message in my view to, to people. They just simply fall into that, uh, that kind of um, you know, fake news and, and uh, conspiracy theory um, stuff that, that does that seem to appeal to so many people, but it's, it isn't really without foundation. And, and when I've read, because I go online and I look at what some of these people say, and I look to, to see where they got it from. And it is, um, it's, Neither science, common sense, or common decency, uh, in my view, to uh, take an anti-vax state a status in your uh, in the way that you influence others. But that's just me. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm a nice guy, and I definitely don't want to catch COVID if I can possibly avoid it, because I'm in that vulnerable category with underlying health conditions. So. You know, I'm taking a little bit of extra care, and I'd like to think other people would do the same thing on my be, you know, for for for, for my sake.
3: And what about Brexit?
4: Brexit is, uh, well, I remember when I I woke up to Brexit. I was in Poland to do a concert, and I woke up in the morning around six, seven in the morning, and um, to hear the 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 early results of the Brexit poll, and was pretty horrified to find out that it was in favor of Brexit. I mean, I I think that the EU needed a sharp shock to wake it up to the fact that as an institution, the EU was, I mean, it was a post-war thing. You know, it was about bringing the European countries together so they wouldn't murder each other in battle. And then it developed into a, an economic union, which is fair enough. And then it became the EU, which was okay. But then it became increasingly caught up with trying to homogenize the whole the whole fabric of Europe into accepting the same set of laws, same set of um, taxation standards, and a a whole lot of things that I felt were removing the national culture and pride and individual nations' sense of who they were, including in the UK. So I think the EU needed a bit of a sharp shock to wake it up. But at the end of the day, I I was... um, i was disappointed that we had not been able to find and accommodate some kind of a, a rational way to remain broadly within europe while having more of our own our laws and our immigration policies in our own hands rather than uh, as part of a a european directive um unfortunately it resulted in us uh, leaving the eu and i'm rather sad about that i've been paying my my german reunification tax since uh, whatever it was 1989 when uh, after the fall of the berlin wall and the the reunification of germany as a as a performer going there to work part of the withholding taxes that we would pay were were that small part that went towards the cost of reunifying germany which is basically building roads and infrastructure and housing and the whole shooting match of what had been the the eastern germany ground into the into the dirt by the the communist regime uh, as an offshoot of of the ussr but um you know i'm 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 i am sorry that we've left the eu i i'm a european i'm i'm a i'm a briton first but i feel very strongly a european it's where i've spent much of my life and i hope in what remains of it i get to spend some more time in europe so, um, yeah, I'm sorry to have left, but I, I didn't want to, I'm, I'm, in a way, I, I'm kind of glad we didn't stay on the terms that we were on. I just felt there was prospects to tough it out a little more and get more of what we wanted while still remaining part of, of Europe. Not a problem that you guys have, it's, uh, you, but you do have the problem of NATO. And you do have the problem of an angry Mr. Putin who's hell-bent on trying to rebuild you know, from the ashes of the USSR trying to rebuild a, a broader empire than the one that he lords over at the moment. I have a photograph, you can find this online, a photograph of, of when I went to play in St. Petersburg, I think in 1990 or 91, and met um, the mayor of St. Petersburg um, at the time, and, and his uh, assistant kind of rather odd, weird-looking little man who was looking daggers at me in this photograph. It turned out to be uh, the KGB Major Putin. Although he was the chief economic advisor to the mayor of St. Petersburg, he was actually a, 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 a major in the KGB at the same time. And uh, Putin is just, the look on his face as I'm you know, smooching with his boss is, is priceless. And um, when I was well, it was brought to my attention many, many years later that there was this photograph of us in the same frame. But uh, you can see something about Putin that and the look in his eyes. It's, uh, he's a frightening guy. I, I actually have a huge admiration for him as a international statesman and politician. But he's a very scary man. <laughs> and uh, I can, you know, like everybody else, we know what he's trying to do. But uh, as someone who's supposed to be in Ukraine... In um, uh, in the middle, in the well, the end of the first week of April, um, it's um, one of those slightly nerve-wracking prospects that uh, will Ukraine still be Ukraine by the time I get there? Or will I, which would be another gig in Russia? Well, I've got to be in Russia for that matter in uh, whenever it is, sometime not too far off, uh, to do some concerts there that have been rescheduled three times already, like most of our concerts since. Early to- 2020, we're, we're on our third or fourth rescheduling of dates that people bought tickets for in the middle of 2019, and we've not showed up for work yet. I mean, it's so embarrassing.
3: Just staying on the politics one more time, uh, a couple of days ago, the lead piece in the New York Times op-ed page was about the UK sliding into authoritarianism. Boris Johnson passing all these laws about... Uh, being arrested if you protest, et cetera. Do you think there's a possibility? We certainly have this issue in the U.S., and needless to say, Putin is an authoritarian, or is that overblown?
4: Well, I think it's a bit overblown. I, I, we are pretty much a, a liberal society, and our media, you know, we have a couple of right-wing newspapers, but they're not anything like as far to the right as, say, Fox. Um, and at the same time, you know, whilst our liberal Side of things, maybe a little more, uh, a little bit more to the left than than CNN. Uh, we're still, generally speaking, I think we're a relatively tolerant country, and and you know once in a while you've got to try and get to grips with what is increasingly what what is referred to here as wokeism. You know, it's uh, those who have um, adopted really an ultra liberal position because they are you know, partly fol- following trends and not wanting to appear hostile or out of touch and and so on. But, you know, there's got to be some common sense in all of it. And, you know, some of it I go along with and some of it I, I, you know, I feel a little awkward about. But generally speaking, you know, we are pretty much a liberal country and the, the most extreme of our right-wing um, media and those within the Conservative Party are still pussycats compared to the Republicans of the USA. Not all of them, but, but most of them. And you know, one of my great chums was um, an absolutely dyed-in-the-wool, idealistic Republican. And, um, and he was you know, someone you could have a spirited argument or discussion with, but he was a true Southern gentleman and loved by all Democrats and Republicans alike. Particularly during his stint, not only with with Fox, but um, as the um, as the press secretary for um, for um, President Bush, actually two President Bushes. He was um, he was the scriptwriter for Dad, and then uh, was the press secretary for for Junio, and um, and I was in his office one day in the White House, and he um, he said dropping names, but um, we were we were there just as a you know. Unexceptional guests to, to watch a press conference and went back to tony snow 's office. Tony Snow was the name of the man and um and we we got back to his office after the the, the press briefing and the phone rang and it was barbara starr from c n n and I could read his body language and the tone of his voice. he was being so polite and nice to her, and she was trying to get the scoop trying to pin him down on oh, yeah, all that you know rubbish you just said you know <laughs> covering up for. For Bush, but you know what's the real story here? What's the real? And 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 he was so nice and polite. He said, "Barbara, you know, if I if I could give you anything more, i w- you'd be the first person I would call. It's it's really nice to hear from you." And and but you got the you got the impression he was somebody that was was really appreciated as a as a person of honor and discretion and and, and a gentlemanly way of doing things. And and he had a very easy relationship with with the media, left and right alike. And I, I remember before Tony died, finally tragically after um repeated illness with um, with colon cancer, he um I, I did say to him, Tony, would you ever you know, would you consider a, a a political career, you know, shift away from being a backroom boy to actually, you know, running for serious office. Um, and he was sort of bashful about it. No, no, uh, my wife wouldn't really want, want me to do that and blah, 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 blah. But I, I've always thought that Tony Tony would have been the Republican president for the USA that the USA really needed. Um, sadly, he was never around to do that. In fact, his last gig wasn't for Fox. His last gig, he was appointed, he took on the job with CNN to be their Republican reporting the upcoming election where obama won and that was tony's the the, the last appointment he had uh, at that point i guess he knew he wasn't going to make it and then sadly he was never able to uh, take on that appointment because he became very seriously ill and died before um, before that happened but it was an interesting an interesting twist that you know tony was so Appreciated and revered, that he would be taken on by CNN to be the the voice of of the Republican Party within CNN whenever they were talking about and analysing the the events leading up to the election. So I, I you know, I miss Tony. He was a good guy, and he would have been a good president. And he was a flute player. That's how I got to know him because his his whole passion was playing the flute. He and I argued. I, I said that he was the model. For the um, the anchor man flute playing sequence, the jazz flute bit, and uh, he claimed that no, he couldn't possibly. It must be me. Uh, in reality, it was probably both of us. But um, I would never classify myself as a jazz flautist and and um, an anchor man. I mean, he was a media person. He was a you know, he was a and so was Tony. So um, I, I I always had my bets that it was modelled on Tony, but. Um, who knows? We'd have to ask the, the, the writers and, the, and the, the actor, you know, where did he get that idea from?
3: Okay, let's go back and set the scene in the 60s. In the U.S., there's certainly always been music, but generally speaking, the early 60s were very vapid. And then at the beginning of the 64, the Beatles arrive. What was going on in the U.K.? You know, we hear about the blues records being imported by soldiers. We hear the scene in Liverpool. The Beatles play at the Cavern Club. You know, as I say, in the U.S., people saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. They picked up electric guitars. What was your experience of the scene?
4: Well, I'd already picked up an electric guitar, I think, at the time, possibly, when the Beatles came along. That's another
3: one of my questions. What motivated you?
4: Yeah, well, it wasn't really that uh, I was a Beatles fan. I mean, I, I remember when they first appeared with a song called Love Me Do. And I think what appealed to me about it was the harmonica. Uh, that kind of set me off on the track of playing harmonica. But, they, you know, they were okay, but they were a pop group. And, and I'd already, at that point, discovered jazz and blues. And I, I was um, not really enamored too much of, of the early Beatles, although they were catchy songs. You could see the expertise and the energy and the... The gauche, youthful thing that they put across—that that, that allowed a, a generation of people to to feel passionate about being young and expressing themselves. But for me, the, the, the you know, the UK at that time, you know, was a curious mixture of different sorts of music, and the pop music of the day was still, for the most part, it had been emulating Elvis Presley and other derivative imitations of other U.S. acts. So it hadn't really, we hadn't really homegrown very much that was anything to feel good about until, until the Beatles came along, and 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 in America you had to endure Herman's Hermits and the Dave Clark Five, um, as the imports from the UK, which people loved, sure enough, but when the Beatles arrived in town, it was a whole a whole new ball game, and then it seemed a quite quick movement towards something where the Beatles, we saw them mature and develop as musicians. And then the the big landmark thing that made a difference to me, and I'm sure many of my peers in the UK, was the advent of what became not progressive rock, but progressive pop. It was Sgt. Pepper in the summer of 67. And within a couple of months of that, there was the Pink Floyd with Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And these two albums, they were like a signpost. It was it was like walking down a walking down a, a path in the middle of the woods and suddenly coming across a fork in the road and a signpost there saying, you know, this way. And it, it was a a huge motivator, you know, to hear what you could do with pop music on the one hand and what you could do with psychedelic rock on the other. So it was um you know quite important to me, not as the actual musical style or the or the elements of the of the music or the personalities of the people playing it. It was just that motivation that you could actually take it into your own hands and and write and record and put music out that wasn't mainstream pop music. Uh, of course, the Beatles had George Martin, without whom I'm sure they couldn't have made that record. And Pink Floyd had Sid Barrett, without whom the lyrics and the, the essence of those songs wouldn't really have m- m- meant a busting amount. man. But uh, they they were they were real signposts and landmarks in in my early days as a teenager. So yeah, it was a, definitely a step forward from the the imitative rock and roll of Britain's music scene in the from the late fifties through to the mid sixties, which was frankly a little embarrassing. You know, we were just copying people, were singing with American accents and wearing the clothes and pretending to be. Um, you know, the American artists that they revered and whose careers they aspired to.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part-time or full-time.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California
2: is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: Okay, so you're in art school. Is that a holding place, or do you envision being an artist or a designer, and how do you pick up the guitar, and how does that become... Your direction in life.
4: Well, I had a guitar at the age of, I think, eleven. I persuaded my first of all, I'd had, I think, when I was eight or nine years old. I got an Elvis Presley ukulele that was my birthday present or Christmas present, bought not online, but you know, a mail order thing. And it, and and I remember the the black and white ad for this ukulele, and it was a picture of Elvis playing what looked like a full size guitar. And it was it cost twenty two and sixpence, which you know in those days was you know probably a couple of dollars. And um, naively, I thought, wow, you know, this is the real deal. And what what arrived in the post was this thing that was a you know fifteen inches long and fragile piece of plastic with nylon strings. that wouldn't stay in tune, and I mean, it was really quite horrible. But you you could actually play a few chords, and and and. And some simple tunes, and and I went on from there to get a, a beaten-up old Spanish guitar, to which I attached steel strings, which of course meant that the action lifted up off the fretboard to the point where you had bleeding fingers in the attempt to play C major, and um, and uh, it was it was you know pretty out of tune, but I, I managed to begin with along with a couple of school chums to make some vaguely musical noises in the style of what was called skiffle. Skiffle in the UK in the in the 50s uh, was a kind of homegrown music form. It was a precursor to punk. You know, you didn't have to be able to play a musical instrument. You just kind of did it. And um, you didn't have drum kits. You had a, a washboard, you know, this sort of corrugated uh, metal thing that you use for scrubbing clothes on. And uh, a tea chest bass, which was a literally a, a wooden tea chest that T was packed in, and you had a, a pole, you know, like a like a broom pole, and a piece of string that was stretched between the two, and you went boom, 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 boom by pulling the the pole tighter or loosening it off, and so that was skiffle, and it was homemade, very simple music that was essentially derived from bluegrass, and bluegrass, in its turn, of course, was derived from folk music from the UK, from Scotland, Ireland, England, and and from uh, from Northwest Europe, so it, it it turned around and come back to the UK as a as a music form that we could all pick up on. You know, there were some energetic and fun songs from the few artists who were able to record and perform, but blue bluegrass in the form of skiffle was something that I think probably. Uh, was the starting point for many of the the musicians of my my era. I mean, I've not really talked to any of them, so I don't know most of them. But I would be surprised if they hadn't also followed the same the same tracks as I did as a teenager. You know, through um, through those early music forms. But I think what we didn't like was the cheesy, showbizy, imitative uh, British pop music, which was based on the American stuff that. You know, we we all preferred the real deal. If we're going to do American music, then let's 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 do Muddy Waters, let's do Howling Wolf, let's do well, even Chuck Berry or or Bo Diddley. You know, uh, which was obviously that the pop side of the blues. But um, those of us who grew up with blues and jazz as teenagers, you know, I think we we set our sights on something a little more esoteric until it dawned on us that that we were middle class white boys. Uh, we weren't. Black. We didn't have the experience, the background, the culture. We were just still copying something that really wasn't ours, which is why I, after a few months um, of um, being in a blues band, you know, was anxious to try and write my own songs and step away from the accusation potentially of just ripping off uh, Black American folk music, which uh, I revered and to this day still do. I would hate to be thought of as just a copyist.
3: So you make this transition. How do you end up going down south to London and becoming professional? What is your goal? And you were really starving. So what was that like? And how did you keep yourself on track with the dream as opposed to giving up?
4: Well, I grew up, I mean, I was born in Scotland, but I moved as an the age of twelve, I think, to the north of England, to a town called Blackpool, a seaside town. Which I've often likened to the worst of New Jersey. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a town where people go to have a good time, but it's pretty desolate in winter, and um, the boardwalk in in. Uh, in Atlantic City or in New Jersey, it's reminiscent of the promenade in Blackpool. People strut up and down and and have a... In the summer, it's nice, you know, eating ice cream and eating burgers or doing what you do. Same sort of thing. But you couldn't really think about being a full-time musician in Blackpool because the only opportunities really were to be essentially a cover band or um, or to be something really very show-busy and do, you know, some sort of very conspicuously pop music but everybody knew that if you wanted to if you wanted to make it you know sure you could go to manchester or the or liverpool and play in some clubs that were perhaps more the (coughs) the um the up and coming places but long term everybody their gut feeling was you got to go to you got to go to london that's where you make it that's where the the music industry is really centered—the record companies, the, the the biggest clubs and venues, and so on. So around sixty-seven, uh, I decided that you know I should bite the bullet and leave home and try for the uh, London opportunity, should it should it exist. But you know, I had a plan B and a plan C. You know, it wasn't like I was you know burning my boats, and so um, it was. Um, it was a, a, a dangerous move, but it worked out in the sense of having a couple of months of abject poverty and literally going hungry and going very, very cold because 67 in in the UK is one of the coldest winters on record. But, um, you know, it picked up again, January, February, we got a gig at the Marquee Club and things moved on from there. And my days of eating recycled um um, off cuts of meat and bits of um, past their sell by date vegetables and um, cooking them up and then you didn't want to waste anything, so you would cook it up and then and then you'd add something else to it next day and something else that the pot just stayed on the stove and you just kept sort of adding to it and so everything stewed in its own juices. but um, it kept me uh, kept me going for a couple of weeks of the the, the bad period of time. And then, you know, we got a few gigs. I had enough money to go and buy, um, you know, Takeaway Chinese or something. It was unbelievably, I mean, absolutely just the, the the most amazing experience was to go in a Chinese takeaway and order some egg fried rice and a, and some uh, sweet and sour pork and, and uh, you know, some noodles and whatever and, and take it back to your lonely little bedsit room and, and it would still be warm enough, and and you know you, you put your hands on it to try and warm your hands up first of all before you ate it. It was a it, that that was just the most amazing, wonderful experience of being independent, being on your own, away from your parents. And, and I spent most of my time alone because I didn't really have any friends or know anybody down there apart from the guys in the band. But they they lived in actually in nearby towns, so we didn't see each other unless we had a gig to go to. So I spent a lot of time alone. It was quite useful because I learned to play a little bit of flute and I started to write some music and I read several of Jack Kerouac's works, which were an interesting um, parallel to my own rather desolate life. I remember reading Desolate Angels as a time when I was particularly cold and miserable and alone. And in a way, it was somebody sharing that experience of, of a stark, rather bleak situation that that uh, gave me a, a little bit of feeling that I wasn't alone in the world. Um, so I, yes, I, I you know it all worked out. I can't complain. I Only went hungry for two weeks. That's you know.
3: Okay, so ultimately, band puts out the album. This was was it always your band, or was it more of equal voice, equal membership?
4: Well, I guess right at the beginning, um, you might have thought it was four guys who had a an equal stake in things and you know were equal voices. But in reality, Mick Abrahams, the guitar player, and I were you know more dynamic musical forces, and we needed Mick because he was a you know virtuoso guitar player and a and um, a shouter, a blues shouter. You know, he liked to. Uh, give it a lot of energy, and you know he had um, a lot going for him as a, a blues and rock performer, and he was vital to the band. Um, but I was the oddball who brought something else to the party that was not mainstream in terms of blues or an approach. And um, he and I always had an uneasy relationship. I think he was uncomfortable with me because of my musical aspirations. Didn't stop with, you know, imitative blues. And, and the other guys tended after a while to come more towards me than Mick. It was very set in his ways and, and a, a bit of a mercurial character from time to time. But um, when we really fell out with Mick towards the end of, of 1968, we were um, already getting a little bit established in the UK. And it was at a time when It was make or break. You know, we'd either build upon that early, small success and find a new guitar player uh, or, you know, go back home to mummy. Those were the options.
3: Okay, so how did it end with Mick? And is Fat Man on stand-up about Mick?
4: Well, it's not really about Mick. It was just uh, the the only time we ever traveled abroad because Mick wouldn't get on an airplane, but we could get a ferry to uh, Denmark. And um, we went to play in two clubs on the ferry from the east coast of England. And um, on the way back to the ferry, to get the ferry home, we went past, we had a little bit of time in hand, we went past a pawn shop um, in Esbjerg, And I noticed in the pawn shop, there was a mandolin hanging there. And I went in, you know, with my whatever I'd earned for doing the club dates, I, I bought a mandolin which I had no idea how to play or tune up or anything. And on the way back, because it's quite a long ferry journey. So we were it was an overnight thing, and Mick and I were sharing a cabin. And I really annoyed him by tuning up and trying to play this mandolin. And he was just getting really, really testy about the fact I was keeping him awake. And but you know, I had a little bit of a tune coming on. You know, oh, God, this this is good. I like this. And um and we used to tease Mick, who was Pink, cherubic, sort of slightly chubby. He wasn't fat. You know, he wasn't obese. He was just a little, just a little chubby in a healthy, chubby kind of a way, whereas the rest of us were sort of rake thin, basically because his mum cooked for him and, and we were starving. <laughs> but I used to tease Mick about being, you know, not fat, but, you know, being a little chubby. And um, so I, I wrote this song, I Don't Want to Be a Fat Man. And it wasn't really about him. It was just, you know, just a little notion, really. And but he was convinced I was. It was was a, a sort of bitter attack on his uh, corporeal presence, and um, <laughs> and um, and he wasn't too happy about it. But it um, it wasn't really about Mick. I mean, I never write songs that are about real people because I would never betray a relationship by by making it so you know so intrusive into somebody's life. But there are an amalgam of personalities and people that as, an, obs- and as a, an, a, an observer, since I'm that kind of a writer, I might draw together a few different people and that becomes a character in a song, but it's never about a particular individual. I've certainly never named names or, you know, take a, an individual as a model for a song. I would just hate to embarrass somebody or betray something that is private between us as a relationship, whether it's a couple of guys or... a man and a woman or you know it's for me it's it's all you know pretty private stuff
3: so have you ever listened to a Bloodwind pig record and i know he's had his health issues but what's your relationship if any with mick today
4: well mick went on to do Bloodwind pig and, and got a lot of help from us and our managers and and uh, record company and um and Bloodwind pig were on tour with Jethro hotel at, at a couple of points along the way and and after bloodwind Pig, I mean, it was sort of mixed band, but they, they threw him out of his own band in the end. Because I think they, they just... Um, he was a tricky chap, you know, to, to, to work with. I mean, a, a very nice man. But, you know, he's had that... You know, absolutely big-hearted, nice guy, but just so insecure and, and a bundle of nerves and twitchy and it always... Um, and it's just kind of awkward to be around. So desperate to be liked. It was... It was overbearing, but um, after Bloodwind Pig Mick, Mick went on, you know, through various um, musical and unmusical uh, activities, and and when he started working again, you know, I played with him a few times, and we, I, you know, did some songs for one of his solo albums and so on, and and um, you know, once in a while we've spoken. Mick, Mick unfortunately, these days. Having suffered very serious ill health is not really, um, you know, he, he's not really able to, to, to have conversations um, on the phone or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think we've exchanged emails a few times, but but Mick is, you know, you know he's not well. And um, I always feel a little sad that he's not able to do anything anymore at all musically. But um, my son, was uh, actively engaged in doing a, a sort of tribute charity concert in London for Mick, and um, which I was I couldn't I couldn't go to. I wasn't a, I was away somewhere else. But it was nice to think that um, my son James was one of the organisers of a fundraiser for Mick to recognise his his role in those years of being part of the British music scene. And Mick has a lot of pals, a lot of friends who stand by him. And, um, you know, he was, in his day, he was a, one of those guitar players, maybe not so obviously on the level of the um, Eric Clapton or Peter Green or Jimmy Page or um, any of those guys, but he was, um, you know, he was a, a revered blues and rock guitarist. And um, until his ill health took over, you know, he was still doing pretty well.
3: Okay, let's go to stand-up. This is obviously a different era. Needless to say, it's not streaming. It's vinyl. Uh, the White Album had come out, which was actually a response to overdone packages. But in 69, you put out stand-up, and it literally stands up when you open the cover. Whose idea was that?
4: Well, I have to—then all the credit goes to Terry Ellis, our manager, because um, the, the, um, the first album cover this was that was, that was my idea. And Terry, bless him, went along with it. I mean, Warner Brothers and Ireland, I think, hated it because you can't possibly do this as a picture of a bunch of old guys with a, a lot of dogs around them, and the, and the name of the band isn't even on the front cover. You know, you can't do that. But but Terry, kind of, you know, he he stood by us, and that that was what I wanted it to be like, and so he went along with it, and. I think it got people's attention because who who would bring out an album cover and the name of the band isn't even on the you know on the front of the cover? It was on the back, but nonetheless, it was it was my 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 one, and then stand up. Terry had come up with a um, with an artist in the USA who did specialized in in woodcuts. And uh, I don't know where Terry saw this, but it was you know very graphic. And and as you know, having been to art school, I did some woodcuts and things at school, so I was quite quite um, you know quite uh, happy to go along with that. And and Terry came up with the idea of a gatefold cover that you would open up, and there would be this sort of pop up thing uh, of the band. And you know, well, I said, okay, fine. Well, if you can make that work, let's 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 do it. And that indeed was the um, was the, was the album cover, which, you know, was quite, in its way, quite iconic. And the fact that the album then did go on to do very well in the UK. In fact, we were on our second U.S. tour. Um, I remember being in uh, Lowe's Midtown in Manhattan in the breakfast room, having breakfast with the guys, and in walked Joe Cocker and came over to our table and said oh congratulations i said why what's happened he said oh, your album just went to number 1 in the uk charts so uh, and can i can i have can i have, are you going to eat all of that bacon can i have a bit so um the um the um, you know the 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 good news was we were away from the uk and could do nothing about it but we had a number 1 album in in, in england and that was when terry said wow you know we got to we've got to capitalize on this we need something to keep the as he put it, keep the pot boiling while we were out of the UK on a long tour, so can you, um, can you write a hit single that we can release in the UK while we're away? Uh, And to humor him, I said, yeah, sure, no problem, just give me a couple of hours. And uh, and by then, I think we'd, we'd gone to Boston, and so we checked into a holiday inn hotel alongside a band called Pentangle, who were also checking in at the same time. And, um, and I said, okay, Terry, give me a couple of hours, I'll meet you in the lobby and I'll write a hit single while I'm upstairs. I was just I was just fooling around, you know, I was just, just just winding him up. But I went back down to the lobby and he said, Have you written it? Have you got it? And I said, Well, sort of, maybe. I don't know. He said, Right, well, I'll book you into a studio in New York next week and we'll go and record it. So I had to come up with you know something slightly more refined from that basic idea and we went in and recorded the backing track to living in the past in in a studio in um, i think it was actually in new jersey it was just across the river and um and then uh, we went then to the west coast i remember then i did the flute and vocal overdubs in a studio in in uh, i think it was in san francisco and we did the mix and sent it back to the UK and it was it was uh, released and amazingly got to number three in the UK singles chart. So in fact, I had written a hit single, but it was one of those silly things. I was just bluffing, I was just, just fooling around. But the fact that it was in 5-4 time signature, it really wasn't a mainstream pop song, was um, quite gratifying because up until that point, there'd only ever been one other top 10 hit in 5-4 time signature, which was... Was um, Dave Brubeck's Take Five, and um, so it was kind of a nice, you know, nice feeling that you'd um, you'd brought something relatively new to the world of uh, you know the, the the pop music charts and music TV because it was on Top of the Pops, our famous um, uh, weekly television show that did um, the latest pop music stuff. So uh, that's how that worked out, and um, the stand-up did, did pretty well, and um, and in its own right, it um, paved the way for what came next.
3: Okay, but staying with the second album for a minute, my favorite song, you have such an incredible memory, how did Look Into the Sun come about?
4: I'd rather think it was something, I'm not sure whether it was on a guitar or whether fiddling around with the Hammond organ, it was in the studio, that, that I just got this really simple little line, and... Um, um, it was just meant to be a song about optimism, um, optimism, and perhaps in the face of some adversity. But it was a very simple, you know, cheerful, quietly upbeat song that um, didn't strike me as it was, you know, so important to the album as a whole compared to songs like "A New Day Yesterday," for example, which uh, I knew was a, you know, a powerful song, and there were others like "For a Thousand Mothers" and. Things that were a bit more animated and were looking to some was a you know gentle placid piece there were two or three like that on it that um were gentle um um reasons for waiting i think was another one that was a similar sort of a feel so um yeah it was just just trying to bring something in the way of dynamic range into the broad context of rock music so it didn't all have to be crash bang wallop with Drums and bass pounding away on everything. You could, you could, you could do things that were a little bit more um, varied and musically a little dent, less dense, and um, you know had different dynamics. And perhaps in the case of a song like that, it was uh, giving me the opportunity to not have to pretend to be a rock singer, which I've never felt, you know, terribly um, able to do. Um, So I could just sing it in a relatively quiet, easy voice, and it was um, nice to um, do something relaxed.
0: Snag-A-Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag-A-Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: Okay, so the next album, let's talk about it from an outside perspective. Many critics felt that the first album was best. Needless to say, that was a sound, a different sound. Second album Great reviews. Now, for people who are younger today, they will not even understand the power of the rock press, but that meant something back then. Third album, commercial breakthrough, but from the perspective of those paying attention, it seemed a little bit more obvious, less cerebral, less internal, and more on the surface. It, of course, you had to cry you a song, which was a legendary riff song. So. Just me. To what degree was this premeditated, or those on the outside are making this all up, and you just cut a record?
4: Well, it was very much um, a reflection of being on tour in America in '69 when we'd, you know, we'd we, we'd just just making our presence felt. You know, we'd played in a few clubs and we'd been an opening act on a few theater shows. Um, but with with a benefit album, it was written. Most of it was written when I got back to the UK, but it did reflect on that what was a sometimes a rather dark experience of being in the USA. Suddenly we were either headlining in modest venues on our own, but we were traveling a lot and spending a lot of time away from home. And and I I think it's it's much of it is it's rather darker in musical terms. Not in a negative way, but it just it just reflects the perhaps some of the isolation some of the cultural confusion that comes out of visiting another country and then finding that after the first initial getting to know it, suddenly you begin to realize that that we don't really necessarily fit in and it, just feel a little i I felt out of place increasingly and in in uh, in American culture, Glenn, our bass player, you know, he loved America. He lo- he just loved everything about it. He was a party guy. You know, he just had made lots of friends and went out at night. And you know, he he had a great time. Uh, but Martin Barr and Clive and myself, you know, we were kind of loners. You know, we just go back to the hotel room, read a book, watch. Um, Dick Cavett was he around then? Yes, he was. But it was that it was that sort of era, you know, where you just you picked up on American culture, but you you did it in a slightly more vicarious way. You know, you saw it from as an observer and, and picked up things from television and media and the newspapers and Smiley's, a New York delicatessen that did the biggest um, the biggest. Um, um, Chopped chicken liver sandwiches known to mankind, and, uh, ch- uh, <laughs> and strawberry malted milkshakes. I remember going with Martin Barrinder, who was starving, hungry. We we managed to scrape between us a few dollars together, and we we bought we bought these enormous wedges of, of chicken liver sandwich and salad dressing and lettuce and tomato and all the trimmings, and um, and then these huge pots of Strawberry malted milkshake. Went back to our horrible hotel and ate ourselves into a stupor, uh, <laughs> having gorged on on entirely unhealthy food. But um, th- those are the sort of th- the amusing moments in what was otherwise quite often a rather a bit depressing in a way for for those of us who were missing being at home. You know, we do suddenly we were getting noticed, and we were not famous, but you know, people knew who we were but we, it made us feel even more sort of displaced. And I think some of that came out in the album. But, you know, an important part of it was I remember being in, uh, in the USA at the time when, um, when uh, Buzz and Neil walked on the moon and, um, and Michael Collins, who didn't, and was in charge of the, uh, the command module. You know, I decided that was worthy of a song, was to write about Michael Collins being the, the guy who didn't get to go to the moon or step onto the moon. And um, and the awful position that he would have been in, and I'm sure it was well planned for in the eventuality that Neil and Buzz either landed and didn't make it back or crashed in the first place, and, and uh, Michael Collins had to return home to Earth alone. He would have been the most vilified and hated person on the planet. and um, But that was his gig. That was the job. That's what he signed up for. And I, I always felt it was rather a touching Experience. Oh, oddly, my son-in-law played Michael Collins in a in a movie about uh, the moon landing. Uh, many years later, not a famous, not not a highly successful movie, but it, he did play Michael Collins. It was a curious. Um, so he had to do all of his research about Michael Collins and everything to do with that that um, that uh, that uh, journey. But um, that that was one of the moments I do remember being in America and feeling really sort of enraptured with with the, the whole the whole thing about america and the space race it was a it was a you got really caught up in it It was very exciting being there at that time and at the same at the same time turning down the opportunity to go and play at woodstock which was pretty much around the same time of the the year along with led zeppelin who also decided not to take up the invitation to go to woodstock
3: and what was the thinking there
4: I don't know what their thinking was, but I would imagine Peter Grant might have had the same view as I do, which was we didn't want to get tarnished with the brush of the dying embers of the hippie era and, you know, sort of a naked, drug taking, massed throng of people who were, you know, falling over themselves to um, love the music of 10 years after, who were forever stuck with that Woodstock appearance for the rest of their lives to this day. Um, it's what people remember ten years after. For Leo Lyons, the bass player, when I met him a few years ago on some festival that we were playing at, and and uh, he just come off stage, and I said, "Oh, what 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 did you play tonight, Leo?" What's a, a set list taped to the side of his guitar? And I leaned over to look at it, and he said, "Oh, it's it's uh, the usual set list." I said, oh, is, is "That's." That that wasn't the set list just for tonight. He said, No, that's been taped to my guitar since nineteen sixty nine. We played at Woodstock.
3: So you have no regrets for not playing?
4: No, no. I think it was way too early for us. We were we were we were not yet fully formed and we were just uh, you know, we, we needed time. We needed time to develop and you know, become a little more mature musically and and it would have been awful if we'd if we'd gone on we probably would have done really well you know people were thought, wow who's that band they're even better than 10 years after but it was too early for us i mean it's okay for the who that they, they, they were on but they were already established they knew what they were doing the who were the who they they were they had a repertoire they had a an identity but jethro toll was just an embryonic finding our way sort of bunch of young guys who weren't sure what they were going to do um so it would have been way too early to achieve any kind of mass exposure and any sudden success. It was much better just to step step back into the shadows and meet up with the the Zepps and be their opening act for a few more shows. That was better learning process for me than confronting a bunch of naked um, uh, hippies.
3: So you talk about uh, being somewhat of a loner, being in the hotel room reading. This is an era when backstage and rock life was really exotic. So when it comes to drugs and groupies, that was not your experience personally. You just were who you were and you took it on the road.
4: Well, I was was also a bit terrified about drugs. I mean, it's it's, it's not a sort of moral position. It's just that I saw so many people, you know, clearly not doing themselves any favors as a result of taking drugs. And, you know, it it, um, it it scared me, you know. Frankly, I just didn't really want to take that risk. I'd, I I was uh, I smoked a lot of cigarettes back in those days, so I assumed that my tendency to have a, an addictive personality was such that if I ended up, you know, smoking marijuana, I'd probably be doing it, you know, m- most of the hours of the day. It Wouldn't be something I would just, you know. Do once or twice a week. It would be I, would, I was terrified it would it would take hold of me as, as cigarette smoking did, and so I never did um, any of that. And uh, which got me the reputation of being a party pooper because you know if you didn't go to you know Led Zeppelin's roadies decided to put on a party and we got invited and I didn't show up. You know everybody thought oh he's you know he's um, he's a snob. He's uh, you know he's um, arrogant. Doesn't want to join in and be one of the boys. Uh, but I was afraid to be one of the boys. And I I I was uncomfortable with the you know, with the with the, the the sex, drugs, and rock and roll bit. I mean, the rock and roll bit was sort of okay, you know, it was it was a living. <laughs> but the sex and the drug bits were, were a bit terrifying, you know, because even then we knew that that um, you know, there were some pretty nasty strains of gonorrhea going around. And girls were quite frightening to me, you know, because they were they were very um Forward in their behaviour into, you know, quite withdrawn um, English boys who perhaps were, you know, not not used to these sort of things. You know, the very forward and confident nature of a lot of American young females—they—they—they—you they, know—they they were quite frightening, really. So I didn't really go in that direction. It wasn't something that, um, you know, you know I. I'm sure I had a, a few relationships, short term and otherwise, with, with with girls when I was in my twenties. But it just wasn't the big thing for me. I was never lured into that kind of party behaviour and the um and the one night stands and the, you know, the whole rock and roll excess thing. It um it seemed everybody else was doing it, so I suppose I, that was a good reason for me not to do it. I just I preferred to try and you know, be different, be, um, do my own thing. So I read a lot of books and I watched a lot of late night talk shows and I read the newspapers and I you know, tried to use the time in a constructive way rather than uh, not be able to remember the next morning what I'd done the night before, which is something that's befallen many bass players in Jethro hotel. They all seem to be the party guys, the bass players. They, they, um, they all seem to be the ones who wanted to go out and have a good time. And I, I know in at least one case, his idea of a really, really, really good time was when he couldn't remember anything that happened from the end of the show until coming to soundcheck the next day. It was just just a complete blank in his mind. Um, so he, could, he, he measured having a good time by the fact that he couldn't remember it, which to me seems utterly ridiculous. You know, why have a good time? And then you can't remember it. I mean, I want to savor my good times and recall them for years to come not have them fade into some deep abyss of uh, of um, what did I do last night? And, um, you know, why have I now, you know, got these nasty uh, scars or cuts on my face or my head or my arms because I got in a fight or, you know, fell down a fire escape or, or on one occasion, somebody who should be nameless tried to flush himself down a toilet. True story. Um, I, I personally rescued him. I mean, he was getting, going nowhere, obviously, but he he, he was in, in, in the toilet bowl, yanking on the chain, trying to, determined to end it all. So I dragged him out and it was at an airport. And I got him on the plane, soaking wet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, we won't, we no names are to be mentioned. In fact, forget that I even said any of that. I just made it up. It's not a true story.
3: Who came up with and how did you create the riff for to cry you a song
4: well I, I have to credit the people who worked in that kind of vein I mean Eric Clapton and cream had already come and gone by then in the sense of cream being a not a direct influence but they, they were the the obvious precursors to Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull arriving on American shores cream. Did you know after the after Hermes Homer's Dave Clark, five the Beatles? Then the cr- cream were the next big thing. They 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 just stampeded across the country, being this amazing, doing it on their own terms, not not um, not um not in any way fitting into any mold. And that's why America loved Cream, because they quite clearly really didn't care whether you liked them or not. They were going to do what they did when they got on the stage. And if you didn't like it, fair enough. If you did like it, then, you know, thanks, we'll take the money and run. So Cream were the first example of that kind of hit-and-run band who really didn't care whether you liked them or not. And when Zeppelin came in, it was just the same. They gave that impression. They were there doing this for them. It was very hedonistic, very self-serving, and they really didn't care whether you liked them or not. And I and I probably picked up on a bit of that. I think in the early days of Jethro Tull, and you know, it um, seemed to be what Americans, generally speaking, seemed to seemed to really be drawn towards people who didn't try to appeal. They didn't try too hard to be liked. Uh, they they sort of recognised the genuine and the honest nature of bands who just came and did their thing. Whereas there, there were others who desperately wanted to be successful in the USA because that was the big prize, was to be a hit in the USA, and they conspicuously tried too hard. And the American audiences seemed to see through that and reject them as um, as wanting it too badly. Um, so I guess they came across, across maybe as being you know, not genuine. Again, mentioning no names, but we, you know, we, we had a few bands who appeared with us who tried too hard and didn't do well at all. Um, but we didn't really care that much.
3: So the next step is Aqualung.
4: Oh, sorry. I am mentioning, yeah, you asked me about To Cry Your so It was really, it was a kind of a post-Cream Eric Clapton who in a band called Blind Faith. And they and they, he'd had a couple of good riffs in that. And I, I guess I took that as a it, not hopefully not to copy it, but just just to take as an example something that was a repetitive riff, and um, and to cry your song was was very much in the style of Eric Clapton at the time of Blind Faith. There was a song I can't remember what it's called. Da 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 Yeah. Well, it's, it's that kind of a thing, you know. It's just a monophonic guitar riff on the lower strings. And because uh, Martin would sometimes lend me his electric guitar so I could write songs and, and um, you know, come up with that sort of thing.
3: So the next step is Aqualung. You create it. Do you have any idea how big it will be? Sometimes, you know, people say, I was totally clueless. Other people say, as soon as this hits the market, it's going to go gargantuan. Suddenly, Jethro Tull, as big as they were before, everywhere, uh, headlining arenas, did you anticipate that?
4: Well, on the last um, day of mixing the album, um, which had been a bit of a tortuous experience because it was a brand new studio that Island Records had just uh, built, con- con- you know, conversion from an old church in in London, and um, there were a lot of technical problems, teething problems with the studio. The Ze- Zeppelin were in the um, in the same studio, but they were in the crypt of the of the church, which was a much more compact. And nicer sounding room to work in. We were in the main body of the church. It was just echoing and horrible and cold and strange atmosphere and uh, technically a lot of problems. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't really sure what we had. I mean, songs, you you know, I felt fairly confident about most of the songs, but sonically, in terms of the end result, I was, you know, a little worried about it. And John Evans, the keyboard player, and I, we went. We'd been working all night and we went out to, uh, in, in the early hours of the morning, to some little cafe that served taxi drivers and off duty policemen and things with, with a hot breakfast at, you know, four o'clock in the morning or something. And so we sat in this place and, and I remember sitting there, we were eating some breakfast and dead tired, just, you know, we're going to go straight to bed, home to bed after that. And I said to John, Look, What do you think? You know, what do you, what do you think we've got here? Is it, is it, going to work. And he looked at me and said, I just don't know. I said, no, I don't know either. And, um, you know, I remember that definite feeling of being a little nervous that it was either going to be the beginning of the end, or it could be the beginning of the next sort of step up the ladder. And I really had no idea. And um, we delivered the record to the record company and it you know, was duly um, pressed and put out. And some media response, but it wasn't huge. You know, I have to say, there wasn't a out of the box, it didn't set everybody on fire. You know, it was, um, and it was okay, it, it sold pretty well. And some of the music on the album, I suppose Aqualung the song My God, for example, they, they were, and Locomotive Breath in Europe, particularly, um, they, they, they made an impact, um. Partly because of subject matter and partly because of the the music, but it 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 was doing okay, but nowhere near what it became over the next two or three years. When it gradually, with us performing more shows in different parts of the world and bringing out new albums, Aquilon continued to sell at a, at a very steady and generous pace, and um, um, and I suppose more than anything else became the the archetypal Jethro Tull record, not only of the 70s, but of all of time. And in many ways, because it was a a mixture of rock music, of gentle acoustic music, of quirky, you know, fun music, and strange, really um, uh, very insular and gentle moments that were sort of singer-songwriter stuff. It was, a, it was a, a mixture of music in terms of dynamic range and musical style. And, and I think that... Um, you know that was part of what gave it a, a an identity that people probably didn't like every song on the album but the, the doubtless there were people who really loved the acoustic songs and weren't that struck with the with the loud rock ones and vice versa but it, it there was something in there perhaps for a a broad spectrum of listeners and um it certainly kind of broke open all of the european territories for us because uh, we hadn't we'd spent too much time playing in the usa and the uk and it was really with aqualung that we were then playing frequently giving equal time to all the european countries where we could perform And, and that it really took off broadly in europe as well in spain and italy and france and germany and so we were we were becoming quite international really at that point in terms of not being the biggest band on planet earth but being you know, one of the, you know, one of the, um, the lesser, but sort of well-known and appreciated groups that were not mainstream in terms of the rock music that was the most successful and popular. So we were doing doing okay.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California?
0: Discover why California is the ultimate
2: playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: So the next album is Thick as a Brick. To what degree was that premeditated? I'm talking about the music one long piece, and to what degree was it just kind of a lark? Let's just do something different.
4: Well, it was both of those things. It was predicated really on the fact that um, Aqualung had a few songs that maybe kind of tied together a little bit. Um, and and in the packaging, in the album cover, and the way that the album was sequenced on side one and side two, along with the liner notes, I tried to bring a bunch of rather disparate songs and music styles try and bring them together a bit with uh, with um, with artwork and packaging which would sort of draw things together a bit even if they didn't deserve it and I think that gave people the impression this was a concept album which it, it really wasn't and I from the word go I said this is not a concept album this is a bunch of songs you know but music critics and writers were determined to perpetuate this idea that it was a concept album so naturally i came to start work on another album and thought right well they thought that was a concept album let's give them the mother of all concept albums and go completely over the top in a you know in a in a in a very exaggerated way and i just thought of this kind of parody really of concept albums prog rock you know, pretending it being written by an eight-year-old boy and um, and um, and um, writing an album through the through the eyes of childhood but a childhood distorted by the post-war years of growing up with a lot of prejudices and and views that came down to a young generation of people from that post-war derision of our of our um, opponents and you know, we, we talked about Jerry as the Hun. We talked about the Japs. You know, we, we were we were taught to be really rather unpleasant and rather right-wing, nasty little children. And we didn't turn out that way, but, you know, that, that was what came down. That, that was the sort of general tenor of children's uh, comics and literature. You know, we, it was reinforcing a lot of stereotypes that I think we could have done without. But on the other hand... It was mostly a bit of fun, and I think most of us just recognise that. Well, okay, you know, it's, we, our parents went to war and f- did all this. That that's the way it's. That's the way we're being handed down that message. But I, I couldn't help but feel that as a child growing up, that you know, you've got to try to make sense of a difficult world. You've got to try and make sense of the things that are stereotypical, that are prejudiced, that are um, perhaps adult ideas that. B- are increasingly becoming irrelevant as, as time goes on, and so I, I wanted to try and see through the eyes of a child, making sense of a difficult adult world, and that's really what the album was about. I mean, it, it's, it, it may seem like well, it is on the one hand a spoof, a parody, a light-hearted bit of fun, but it also has a quite a serious message lying underlying the whole thing, and uh, I would write um the album in you know I'd do the next 3 minutes in in the morning when I woke up you know quite early usually I'd start work around 8 or 9 in the morning and write the next 3 or 4 minutes of music and then after lunch I would go and meet the guys at the rehearsal room in the south of London in the Rolling Stones rehearsal room and um and then we would add we'd learn what I wrote that morning and add it to what I'd done the day before and so we built up the album over a period of about 10 days of rehearsal so that we could play it all the way through and then we went into the recording studio and we played it all the way through and took another 10 days to record the album and then actually a bit longer to do the album cover because it was quite um, involved and you know took quite a bit of time putting it all together and shooting all the photographs and doing everything it actually took longer to, to do the album cover than it did to record the record but it was worth it again because it was one of those zany ideas. I mean, Terry, our manager, he 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 really didn't like the album cover. Nobody did. They thought this was just insane. You know, sixteen-page newspaper is an album cover. <laughs> anyway, but he he you know he he kind of went along with it as he did with um, the first album, and it um it was part and parcel of what made that album, you know, kind of stand out from the crowd. And poor old John Lennon had. Embarked upon an album which was released shortly afterwards and was already in the works at the time when Thick as a Brick was released and actually went to number one in the American charts. And and John Lennon's album, which featured the front cover the front page of the New York Times, was released shortly afterwards. And and of course, he and his record company must have seen you know, this idea has already been done and and out there, and is bigger and better in a sixteen-page newspaper. But you can't pull it. You know, he did that; they'd already printed half a mil, million copies of John Lennon's album and the artwork and everything. Yeah. So it must have been quite galling in a way. You know, when you you've got a, an idea, you think, "Wow, this is good," and then somebody's actually beaten you to it and and quietly sneaked something out there, and 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 now you're you're the uh, you're the imitators and the the late comers, to an idea that um, I think was very important to the album.
3: It was one of the worst John Lennon albums anyway, sometime in New York City, so don't worry about it. But let's talk about that album cover. I asked about the standing up on Stand Up. We have Thick as a Brick. Rock history is littered with acts bitching about their labels, saying they wouldn't let me do it, or they let me do it and I had to eat the price. You had a very unique situation in that your managers were the record company. Now, in America, they were distributed by other labels, Warner Brothers, etc. By the end of the, uh, by the time you hit the 80s, they have their own freestanding company. So, a number of questions. What did Terry Ellis do? What did Chris Wright do? And I always felt that Chrysalis was built on the back of Jethro Tull. So I wonder, did they acknowledge that financially? They give you a piece of the company because for a long time, Jethro Tull was the only successful act. So how did it work with you and your managers and the money?
4: Money began when uh, nobody wanted to record Jethro Tull back in 1968 and Terry's, uh, I believe his father's bank manager um, loaned some money. And so Terry and Chris took the the chance, and uh, we made the record um with borrowed money. We had no record company, no deal. and then they hawked around the the tapes to try and find a deal. and eventually Chris Blackwell at Island Records took it on and um and it was released through Ireland, the first album. and um, and then Terry and Chris had a you know, they're a little older than I was, but they were learning on their feet. You know, they were learning the job, learning about the music industry. And so they they um, hankered after not just being agents or managers, but but the idea of having a record company. And And so Chrysalis Records was born as a label. They were able to renegotiate their deal with Island Records in the UK and with Warner Warner's in uh, in the USA, actually with the Reprise label, who then... Um, they got their label copy, but it was still marketed and distributed by a major record company in uh, in most you know, most parts of the world. But it was a it looked like a Chrysalis record, and and Jethro Tull was the first act to be signed to Chrysalis. But it would be a little bit too generous to say um, Chrysalis you know was founded on the back of Jethro Tull, or you know there was a bunch of other acts at that point. You know. We were all important to Chrysalis Records in those well, first few no, months. Well,
3: who else, no, who else in the 60s, early 70s on Chrysalis had anywhere near the level of success of Jethro Tull?
4: Well, 10 years after did pretty well to begin with. And then uh, Procol Harem, for example, came along. They, they were quite meaningful. And then a whole bunch of other acts um, that um, that passed through the Chrysalis ranks over the next few years. But, you know, sure, Jethro Tull was important. But I'm, I, you know, I would. I'm, Chris and uh, and uh, Terry have both generously said that you know obviously Jethro Tull was very important to them at the time, but you know we weren't the only we weren't the only thing. I think they would have made it without Jethro Tull. It's just that we that the process was was speeded up a little by the fact that we were successful enough that Terry and Chris could renegotiate the deals and when they renegotiated the deals for higher royalties and different deal structures they passed the benefits of that on to us you know we we they they volunteered to say hey you know you guys you should get a bigger royalty now because we're getting a bigger royalty and so they they generously took that initiative and i mean Terry and i were always i didn't have so much to do with with Chris because he was really more looking after 10 years after and procol but um Terry was, um, you know, the one focused on our careers and he and I were always butting heads and disagreeing on a whole lot of stuff. And sometimes, you know, he won the argument, sometimes I won the argument. And Thick as a Brick album cover is an example of, you know, me winning the argument. I really think this is what we should do, Terry. I think it's going to work. Other times, you know, Terry, you know, he was, um, he was the one who, was responsible for the Benefit album cover. And I, I wasn't really keen on it at all, but, you know, okay, Terry, if you, you think this is right, let's do this. And I think that was part of the the relationship is that both of us had our very strong opinions, but we were not not uh, averse to having a discussion, however spirited and sometimes um, loud it might be. But, you know, we, we both knew we could capitulate and say okay let's do it your way and um, I think that was the strength of that relationship that um, we were both learning as we went along I was learning about the technical issues of production and making records he was learning about the business side of not just managing the band but you know developing a record company so you know we got we, we got to absolute carte blanche to do whatever we wanted in musical terms and um uh, uh, the, the, those who were involved in the marketing and distribution like warner's or or Ireland or then b m g in the u s in 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 europe you know they they were just they were there to do a job and they didn't really have any creative say in what we were doing I think Warners might have tried to do that in the early days, but they they soon accepted that you know we were selling records and even if they didn't quite get it in terms of why they were selling <laughs> they, they 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 went along with it and um and we 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 never had any any kind of um, real uh, uh, contentious input from record companies. You know, you, quite often they didn't, they had no idea what they were getting until I delivered the master tapes. That was it. And, um, you know, Chrysalis trusted me to do that. And I trusted them to, once they'd got the master tapes, I trusted them to get on with it and do the best job they could in terms of the the commercial application of that, that that's the bit they were supposed to be good at. It's exactly the same to this day. You know, I, I hand over the master tapes and when it comes to marketing and promotion, I'm a pussycat. I'm paying somebody else, you know, effectively to, to use their expertise, their knowledge and their, and the, um, the weight of their, their, their authority in, in the case of inside out a boutique label and uh, owned by, uh, Sony Records, so we were distributed and marketed by Sony, effectively, which is is, a, is a, an ideal an ideal blend of being with a major, but at the same time, at the front end, we're with a, a sort of boutique label, which is very much like how Chrysalis were in the first two or three years. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, things come perhaps full circle in that regard.
3: But let's talk about the money. Needless to say, Chrysalis was sold to EMI— Uh, early 90s. uh, EMI was ultimately sold, again, broken up. At this late date, do you still get royalties for those Jethro Toll records? And two, did you own the publishing or was the publishing split with Chrysalis? And what's the status of that today?
4: Well, the the royalty rate that we were on right at the beginning, was a very small one. It was better than the Beatles got when they started, but it was a pretty small piece of the action. Um, and then it was uh, redressed considerably around the time of Thick as a Brick, where we started getting quite quite a meaningful royalty rate at that point, and I was also getting paid as a producer because I was the guy writing the music and producing the records. I was the man in the studio taking on the the mantle of all of that. Um, By 74, I was running the business of Jethro Tull financially. So I was paying all the bills and running it as, you know, from a commercial standpoint, well, my company was. Um, So we were getting a pretty good royalty rate at that point. Um, And by, I don't know, by the end of the 70s, we were on what was probably the, you know, the kind of highest level of artist royalty rate that anybody was getting paid. And Chris and Terry uh, were always, you know, making sure that we were being rewarded in the same way as the the highest paid artists of the day. So our contracts were being renewed and renegotiated and we were getting better deals, but you know, it was never a subject of no one was being held hostage or anything. You know, it was just that I think it was recognized that you, you were all there to share the benefits together. And so you try and be fair about it. Um, But the publishing side of it, you know, originally it was published, you know, it was Chrysalis Publishing and then, um, Along the way chrysalis um, uh, went into the publishing side with BMG so it was chrysalis BMG and then um, and then it became just BMG which it is to this day and I, I'm I, my, I'm still published by BMG at the same rate as it was when I was published by in the latter days of chrysalis so um, you know without 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 going into the percentage terms it's about as high as you can get that comes to me and and they they get the the sort of a you know, what I suppose is probably fairly standard in the business for people of our stature. Um, so yes, I mean, I own the publishing and I um, that was in the days of Terry and Chris, you know, they said, well, you should own your own publishing. It's uh, You're writing all these songs and, you know, if we if we make our cutters as the uh, licensed publishers, then that's good. So that's the way that it works. And so I, I continue to license our products and renew those licenses with BMG, who I've got a long-standing relationship with that goes back 40 years or something. So um, it's the way that that one works. And uh, in this day and age, you know, I know, I mean. Long gone are the days when I used to employ lawyers to negotiate record contracts. You know, we figured that one out a long time ago. So I'm quite happy to um, feel confident in negotiating a record contract these days and for some years in the past. And and so I, I, I know how all that works. I know what the deal points and the structures and all the small print are all about. And, you know, uh, the royalty rate that we get today is... Um, you know, it's the, it's 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 the sort of top rate you would get. Um, um, I don't think I don't I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe anybody gets more uh, than we get. What they might get is bigger advances, but I'm not an advanced guy. I, I I just say, look, keep your money. You know, when we've sold the records, then you can pay me. But record companies and their cash flows and all the rest of it, they sometimes insist as do promoters, or well, we want to pay you some in advance, and um, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't mind having an advance, but I'm more comfortable in getting a high royalty and a, a notional advance just as an act of good faith to make sure that uh, having laid out some money, a record company going to make the effort to try and sell product in order to reco- recoup their advance. But I'm, I'm always, always much preferred to have a big royalty, small advance. And um, if record companies want to pay me a bigger advance, well, that, that's fine. But I, it's not what I'm shooting for at all i just want to i just want a good royalty rate we're all we're all in the business of risk together it seems to me that you know the back end is the important thing if you've done well then that's when you can afford to be generous if you're a you know if you're a record company you can afford to pay your artists generously once you've sold the records if you don't sell them everybody's a loser and that doesn't seem to be the business i want to be in for sure
3: would you ever sell your publishing which is something that's happening with a lot of acts of your vintage at this point
4: well that 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 process came back came up many 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 years ago as the idea of you know cashing in on your publishing and uh, taking a lump sum or taking a lump sum you know selling it for a period of time and then getting it back i mean all of that's been going on for years and years and years and frankly it's not something i mean i i think i looked at it you know i've had a couple of offers to do that but it's not something that it's very hard to value because, especially with a swing towards digital um, technology and digital um, ways of getting music, you know, when it, when it's uh, you're dealing in the world of, of streaming and hardly any paid downloads these days. It's mostly streaming and, of course, physical product. It's a, it's quite difficult, really, to, to put a value on the on the residual life of of copyrights. Um, in publishing terms, is fairly generous, you know, seventy-five years after the death of the composer. But in uh, up, up until a few years ago, um, in the UK, the life of copyright was was really rather minimal. It was it was fifty years, um, and then it went. And so we were facing the time when many acts of the '60s were going to fall out of copyright. Some of them famous people, like the Beatles, but. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artists who maybe only ever had one hit or some marginal record sales. Suddenly that, that, that little royalty that they were depending on every year to, to pay for the heating bill or to, you know, put food on the table was going to disappear. And, and I, I was one of those people, you know, making a strong play with the UK government for extending life of copyright for, um, in recorded product. And the prime minister of the day, who I went to meet with and tried to persuade him and did some back of an envelope calculations to point out to him the value to the exchequer of keeping copyright going and what this meant in terms of gathering tax, Um, just was taking a political view that copyright was something old-fashioned and should be free for everybody, blah, blah, blah. Um, But luckily, Uh, Through the EU, in fact, it was uh, reversed, and we did, in fact, get an extension to the life of copyright, more or less in parallel with how it already was in the USA. So it's it's become a little more generous, and it does mean there's a little more value in copyright than there was perhaps twenty years ago in the UK. I mean, it would be valued a little higher, you know, the the residual rights of um, of copyright. And I, I don't think, personally speaking, I would ever be seduced into selling. Copyright. I I think I would rather I would rather be passing it on to my family um, initially, and continuing to you know pay tax on that revenue, which is um, is um, to me. I'd rather be at the focus, the center of it, rather than it's somebody else's asset uh, to fool around with and offset against other corporate losses or do whatever they might do with it. I mean, I I just really would rather I and my successors in entitled are, are hands on about it. I mean luckily I have a son who's um, grown up with me in the music industry and so he's um you know he's uh, he understands all this stuff and will um, is already taking a an increasingly leading role in managing the assets of of uh, both my personal Um, musical income and the corporate musical income and he one day not too far from now will be it'll all be on his shoulders he may decide hey i've had enough out i want to sell it well that's 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 his decision not mine
3: ultimately release crest of the knave in 1987 becomes mega successful but also the inside story is the album was focus group in terms of what singles so did you know that would be a commercial comeback, and to what degree was the focus story true, and did it affect anything on the record?
4: Well, I, 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 I may be wrong in this, but I do think it was my idea that we did that, because I wasn't really sure. There's been a huge change, in, not so much in Europe, but certainly in the USA, this big swing away from what used to be called AOR radio to very tightly regimented and researched um, playlists um, and the swing away from that AOR album product to alternative rock and contemporary pop and rock and stations like um, like KLOS or WNEW suddenly they were trying to you know get hip and do the new thing and um, and they changed their format their playlists and everything and Jethro Tull just wasn't getting radio sorry playtime anymore in, in the way that we had during the seventies. But I think what happened was that the, uh, the audiences that the demographic that, that American radio was increasingly playing to prove to be fickle, they didn't actually spend the money on the products that were being advertised on American radio in the way that it had been before. And so gradually, it swung back again to, um, to uh, not a complete reversion, but to, to something that then became known as classic rock. And um, many of those stations then went back to playing the kind of music that they'd played before. And um, I assume they um, replenished their coffers because the uh, slightly older demographic was was supporting the advertising that brought them their revenue. And we, we began just to sort of get a sniff of that, I suppose, in the latter part of the 80s. And, and I'd suggested that we should play the record initially, not to the media, not to the press, because chances are we've got a rough ride and people would not be approving. I said, why don't we play it to the fans, you know, and get a body of of thought and opinion. And we can, you know, maybe choose um, the lead tracks we put to radio um, as a result of what we think Jethro Tull fans want. And uh, and we did that to a degree. I mean, not, not in a hugely detailed, massive survey, but, you know, to a s- s- small focus group kind of thing. And, and it, it got the record company interested. That was the, the most important thing, is it, it energized the record company a little bit, because they were getting direct feedback from the fans who were going to buy this record, or not. And I think that's what what got them to sit up and take notice of uh, Crestov and Ave, and, um, and um, the New York office of Chrysalis were suddenly making a lot more effort than they perhaps had been to, to sell product, and and to, and to promote it in a way that was much more hands-on and active and uh, their promo guy in new york um was um was you know really um you know he really took it on as a personal crusade to try and uh, get jethro hotel noticed and we got some mTV play and generally speaking we um we were we were not exactly back in favor but we were getting noticed again and um and the record company then Nominated us for a Grammy in a new ga- Grammy con- uh, category, and the rest of all that story, of course, you know all too well. But it um, it was just the beginning of um, um, of it wasn't exactly a comeback. It was just sort of in in a way. Well, you said refocusing Jethro Tull with a with a with a demographic that that kind of knew us already, and it was just reminding people we were still around. And you know, there were very much that that is not. Uh, that is not just due to me or the record, but it was the efforts of Chrysalis, particularly in the USA, and particularly of, of uh, Kevin Sutter, the promo guy in New York. He was, you know, he should take the credit for a lot of the success of that album.
3: Well, he's always told me this story. Good to have it confirmed by you. Now, somewhere around Thick as a Brick, certainly Passion Play, the media turns against Jethro Tull. Did you sense this and I would say, generally speaking, Jethro Tull doesn't get any respect, although I believe it deserves so much. And then some people, you know, put it in the progressive camp. It's not in the progressive camp in my particular world. How do you view all that?
4: I think that any band, any artist, will there'll be a love affair with the critics and, and the public alike for a while. And maybe that lasts you three or four records. And then something new is coming along and maybe, and understandably, particularly, you know, music journalists who've been perhaps flattered by record companies and managers and invited to concerts and given free tickets and all the rest of it. Suddenly they, they begin to feel, you know, they're in the pocket, potentially, that people will see them as being a soft touch. They're always going to write good reviews and, and necessarily they're going to, say, no, well, this time we're going to buck against the system. We we, we we don't think this does deserve a good review. We're going to give it a stinker, you know, and, um, and um, show that we're independent minds and independent writers. And I think, to a degree, that's what happens and certainly happened with Jethro Tull around the time of, of a passion play, most notably in the UK press, but uh, also in the USA too and in Australia. I, I remember we got some really, really bad reviews. And I can understand why, and and to some extent, I, having known some of those journalists, I mean, I, 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 you know, I had to say, look, hey, yeah, I think you got this about right. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that great. You know, a lot of criticism could be levelled at a passion play, and some of it quite justifiably, but. Um, of course, it hurt at the time, but it was greatly exaggerated, you know. Especially with the ridiculous press story, Jethro Tull quits because of a horrible front page bad review in Melody Maker. We didn't quit. The first thing I heard of it was when I walked down Oxford Street in London and saw the uh, copies of Melody Maker on the newsstand with this headline thing. And I, what? And I bought one to to read it, and I was absolutely incensed. I thought, How? Well, where did they get this from? So I went to the nearest phone box and called my manager called Terry Ellis the Chrysalis and said what the hell is this who who put this out he said ah uh well um sorry i forgot to mention it to you but i thought this was a good idea we got another front page headline and melody maker so, i mean m- one of the times when terry and i definitely butted heads and did not agree on on the, the way forward but um it made us i thought just look really rather petulant and stupid and it it took a while to Come back from that. But, uh, and I I actually took Ray Coleman, the editor of Melody Maker, to task. Ray, you knew this wasn't right. You knew you were being fed a line. You just just went along with it because you were prepared to take it at face value because it was a big story you could use on the front page. You know, you could have just picked up the phone to me and said, Is this right? I was was a bit, bit upset with Ray. And I mean, of course, we did. Things together in the future, and he was a, a lovely chap. But you know, it was convenient for him to believe what he was being told, and um, it was uh, it was definitely not um, not. Uh, it was a, a total piece of manufactured uh, front page grabbing hysteria, and um, uh, I think actually a rather silly thing to do.
3: And what about the Prague moniker?
4: Well, I was always very pleased to be in the um, realms of progressive rock in people's estimation, because that, that term first came about, as far as I'm aware, in the UK Music Press in 1969. And I first saw the term progressive rock applied to a few bands, including Jethro Tull. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I quite like that. I quite like the idea of being progressive rock. That, that's, that seems to me what I do. and um, And so that was fine. But then, of course, it got shortened to prog rock, and then just prog. And by the time the early punks came along, prog was a derisory term, meant to meant to describe people who were um, uh, basically um, obsessed with showing off their instrumental prowess and who were arrogant and old-fashioned and and generally speaking, you know, up their own arses, to put it mildly. And um, and, and I think probably bands like Yes and Genesis and Emerson Lake and Palmer do have to bear some responsibility for that. Great musicians and great artists as they were, but Jethro Tull was a bit more rough and ready. I think a bit more—you know—there bit, bit, was a rougher edge to what we did. Partly because we weren't as good as they were in terms of our musical ability, but also there was an, an edge to some of the music, particularly in the lyrics. So um, I guess um, I guess that's why some of the bands from the punk era secretly were actually Jethro Tull fans like Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols huge huge fan of Aqualung and then you know some of the other folks I remember being approached by um, Joey Ramone at a Swiss festival who was just all over me wanted autographs because his mum was a huge fan and and um and um the guitar player from the Red Hot Chili Peppers or or the the guys in the Stranglers or Sting and a whole bunch of people who were part of that early punk thing who were secret Jethro Tell fans. Um, I mean, I know this because this is hand experience. You know, they've actually said so, and I'm sure they weren't just being nice to me. Well, perhaps they were. But um, it's, it's just kind of nice to know that, that you did actually make an impact on that next generation of musicians, even though they couldn't possibly admit publicly to liking Genesis or Jethro Tell or whatever it might be but secretly they did. We were part of their learning process, part of their background, their points of reference musically. And even though what they did was musically very different, it was still informed in some way by the music that had gone before. And I think Johnny Rotten saw in the song Aqualung and and saw in the album cover of that, he saw a persona, a character that was angry and yet sensitive and fearful. You know, the, the, the way that was depicted on the Aqualung album cover, and, that, and that's Johnny Rotten. That's how, that's how he appeared when he first appeared on TV, this kind of hunched guy with sort of the same kind of pose, and and, and he's a mixture of aggression and anger, and yet fear and vulnerability. I think he captured that in, in his stage persona. Um, maybe I'm being a little fanciful in that, but he, he certainly told me he was a huge fan of, the, of that track. He
3: also wore the long coat, Okay, many Jethro Tull albums have been remixed by Stephen Wilson. Uh, Generally speaking, I'm against remixing, but he has a unique way of doing it without putting down the other people who've attempted the same thing with the Beatles and other acts. Where he seems just to scrape away the detritus, the steel wool, and it sounds exactly like the original, but better. So how did you get involved with him remixing your records? How do you feel about all that? He told me that you wanted to fix some mistakes from the past. And he said, no, this is for fans and this is how the fans remember it. So can you tell me the experience there?
4: Yeah, that, that, that is, that is how Steven feels about it. And I've, you know I, I told him to remix Aqualung in five point one surround sound and and uh, put the saxophone in another room. I said, "Just leave out the saxophone <laughs> which he, he he said no we can 't do that we've got 've got to keep everything there in the way it was but we 'll just make it a little you know more transparent because it was too dense that album it was just too much going on all the time. But you know the whole point about um, when I was asked by the record company, you know, about doing remixes, and I somewhere I'd I'd think I'd heard that Stephen Wilson had remixed um, that classic first um, King Crimson album. So, I, and having believed that that Robert Fripp was quite a kind of a control freak, hands-on guy, I thought, well, if he let Stephen Wilson remix his the big album, then um, you know he must be all right. So I suggested Stephen Wilson to the record company who I think at that point was still Warners and um, I think it was Aqualung they wanted to do and so I said well send him a couple of tracks and see how he gets on and um, he and I communicated and and um, and so Stephen sent me a couple of you know rough mixes having got the, the digital masters you know because obviously it was transferred from the 24 track analog tape to um, you know 24 bit audio and then in that process, you can then tackle it in a different way. You can clean up all the tracks. You can get rid of those little clicks and hisses and hums. You can you can delete the extraneous noise between lines of vocal or verses and choruses. You can have absolute digital silence, and so suddenly the music is much more transparent. You know, you don't have all that general kind of. Analog, mulchy kind of background. Suddenly, it's it's you can see through the clouds. You know, it's um, it's it's daylight, and um, I think that's what Stephen has always done well. That he cleans everything up, and then he he analyzes the way the original mixes were done, and sets out not to replicate it, but to generally speaking have the same stereo field in terms of positioning instruments and. Gives them the same dynamic um, kind of place, but, you know, he fine-tunes everything to a degree that I think makes the music, ultimately, it is clearer, punchier, more transparent. And uh, in some ways, you know, he has a bit of a trade-off because you're dealing with analog tapes that are 30, 40, 50 years old. And and they can only probably, they, they get baked in an oven so that glues the oxide onto the backing, for one more pass, uh, which is your one and only chance really to um, to uh, lift off that audio and transfer it to the digital domain. But, you know, sometimes the tape has lost a little bit of quality. It's very often the high end seems to suffer, certainly with certain tape batches that came. I think the A album suffered very badly from loss of oxide and it was quite a tough one to try and recapture the, the high end uh, on that album. But, to to an extent, you know, there's a bit of a trade off there. But by and large, the balance lies in favour of being able to clean things up, tidy things up, give it a bit more punch, a bit more transparency, and and not radically change the balance of instruments or the or the stereo fields positioning of instruments. But then, of course, part of the remixing process isn't just recreating a stereo mix; it's a, it's five point one surround and and um, in that regard, I'm more than happy to hand over the reins because I do not have a 5.1 surround system. I actually don't own a record player. I used to have a CD player, but Apple stopped putting CD players in their desktop computers, so I don't even have one of those anymore. So I'm, I'm being used to listening for 20-odd years now. I mean, I only listen to music as digital audio files, but then for the most part, I'm listening to 24-bit digital audio files, which are you know, great quality. Um that's the medium in which I work as a writer, as a producer, as a recording engineer and when I'm recording for other people. As a guest, I you know, I'm always used to hearing and hearing good quality music, but um I don't I don't as a music listener, I'm not really a, a music fan or a A geek, you know uh, the idea of the Japanese tea ceremony of music listening by, you know, gently blowing the dust off your vinyl record and setting it all up and putting it on the turntable and gently dropping the needle on in the right place so you don't damage anything or make horrible noises and then sitting back and listening to an entire album, it's a great thing to do. But it's it is it's slowing everything down. It's just stepping back, and that's why I say the Japanese tea ceremony is a very formal and and staid way of listening to music and perhaps that's the way people did it in the 60s and 70s and they're doing it again today and good luck to them but frankly speaking I if, if I have a record player I don't know where it is I, I know I did have one or two because I don't remember selling them but um, um, you know it's the sort of thing I just don't really feel inclined to um, to acquire um, technical stuff you know gadgets and things I've Surrounded by these for all of my life, and I still am today, surrounded by gadgets. But I'm an acoustic guy. I like to pick up and play acoustic instruments and, you know, and have a good microphone. And yes, I use all the technology when it comes to recording and mixing, but uh, it's not stuff that I enjoy. It's just tools of the trade. You know, it's just a, a means to an end, whereas I can get quite attached to a good microphone or get attached to a nice musical instrument. But the rest of the gadgetry means little to me. It's um, here today, gone tomorrow. It's all all as good as the next update, you know, to your software.
3: Okay, stay with software. That's a very modern viewpoint, which a lot of older artists do not embrace. And they bitch about today's system. What do we know? No matter who you are, it's different from the pre-internet era. Very hard to reach people. Okay, maybe the usual suspects will come to see you live. But to get your new music into the hands of the public, to have radio and other exposure outlets play it is difficult for absolutely everybody, new and classic acts. So you have a new album coming out imminently. What was the motivation to do it? Also, knowing that it's harder than ever for people to hear it. Many people don't record at all who are of your vintage. And how did it suddenly become Jethro Tull again as opposed to Ian Anderson?
4: Well, I've, um, I mean, people are fond of saying, oh, it's the first new Jethro Tull album in 20 years. Well, it's not. It's actually 19. And secondly, um, there have been quite a few record releases in that period of time. You know, In 2011, I started work on a new project, which turned out to be Thick as a Brick 2, although I released it under my own name at that point. And, um, and then two years later, there was Homo erraticus, again released under my own name. But in retrospect, probably that should have been released as a Jethro Tull album, because it was the same bunch of guys who are on the Zealot gene and, um, and have been playing with me for an average of about 15 years. Um, longest lineup of Jethro Tull ever, and um, and then of course there was string Quartet's album, which once again got to uh, number one in the Billboard charts of some obscure category, classical crossover or whatever it was called. And um, it, um, you know, I've not been I've not been asleep on my feet. You know, I've been busy working at things and obviously doing a huge amount of tours. But the time came in. During 19, 2016, I decided I should, I should make a new record again, two years after the previous one. And at the beginning of 2017, I, I cracked on with the job of uh, a new album, which I decided would be a Jethro Tell album, and decided I would write a bunch of, of uh, songs that each one would be about a different strong human emotion. That was the simple underlying theme. So I wrote down a list of words to describe human emotions, extreme human emotions, just one word for each, each one. And I wrote down words like hate, vengeance, retribution, jealousy, anger, greed, and then some nice stuff like fraternal love, uh, spiritual love, erotic love, uh, compassion, companionship, loyalty. And I looked at my list of words, which would hopefully become songs, and I thought, well, wow, these are all words I remember reading in the Holy Bible— and so, in a whimsical moment of fancy, I did an internet search for examples of those words coming up in the Bible and, and perused that with you know a mixture of amusement and some intellectual curiosity, because I'm not a Bible scholar, and I, um, I copied and pasted some examples of those just as references when it came to write songs. And the songs, for the most part, are songs about the real world and the present day, but I allude to elements of the biblical stories here and there and a couple of songs more obviously than others but that's the that's the um that's the background to the record and uh, it began in early 2017 and i we recorded seven tracks uh, four of which were complete by the end of that 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 year and the rest i kept telling myself well i'll get on to finish the rest of it but we were on tour so much in 2018 and 2019 and i kept putting it off and then suddenly, the pandemic was on us, and another another period of more than a year went by when we couldn't get together and work. We were in lockdown, not allowed to be in each other's company and um, so I decided I would do the last five songs, which I'd written back in two thousand and seventeen. They were all complete lyrically and musically, and just went back and relearned them and um and recorded them at home as acoustic tracks and um which in a way was probably a good thing because it gave the album rather like Aqualung. It gave it a little bit more variety in terms of dynamics and musical style. So um, it was uh, finally completed in, and mixed and mastered in June of this year. And uh, the album artwork was done. And I went in search of a record company who might be brave enough to take it on. And, you know, we listened to the overtures of about six different record companies and two in particular who, we went into much more depth with in terms of um, looking at um, the detail of of uh, potential deals. And um, I made my decision. Um, but unfortunately, the the reality of today's world is we meant, uh, meant we would have to wait for some time in order to get vinyl pressed. Because it's the waiting time to get vinyl pressed from scratch is somewhere. Some people will say eight, nine months. Other people will say more than a year. Uh, that's the queue to be in if you want to get your new record pressed as a vinyl product. But um, I've already um, jumped the gun a bit by uh, by uh, scheduling a release in the end of March 2023 for the next album. So we're, we're already in the queue for having that one pressed uh, in time. But it's been frustrating, to say the least, having to wait from May, June when I'd sort of done the work and then thinking... It's not going to be out until January. It uh, seems like another, another long period of sitting on my hands and then having to be re-energized to do all the press and promo to try and um, make its presence felt amongst that small but ardent body of fans and perhaps introduce it to a few people who are perhaps not too aware of Jethro Tull but might hear about it uh, in what remains of the uh, music media.
3: You're heavily active. You talk about being on the road so much that you can't finish the record. You talk about scheduling a record in 2023. What is the motivation? Now, there are a lot of acts. They literally have to work to pay the bills. You've had much more success than many of those people. You're a smart guy. You own your own publishing. To what degree is money motivation? Some people, they do the live gig because they just cannot get that response anywhere else in life that feedback from the audience. So what keeps you still working on the road and still making new records?
4: Well part of it is just that that kind of creative urge that you seem to have been born with and as a child you know I can remember doing things I was always happy in my own company playing alone writing reading drawing and I mean, I, I think I've always felt that creative urge and I don't feel the need to be with other people necessarily to, you know, for socializing. I, as I, I, I have too much or had too much older brothers, but I grew up because they'd left home. I was, grew up more or less as an only child and I wasn't um, particularly sociable at school. So I, I had plenty of time to try and develop that sort of creative side of my personality. And I think that that never goes away. It always becomes a a little quietly burning thing in the back of your mind, whatever else you're doing. And when it comes to making a new record, you're also, I say you, we, I, am driven by another consideration, which is that time is running out. You know, the um, the sands of time are trickling through there in a very evident and seemingly ever-increasing way. And I figure if I don't do this now, it, it just could be too late. That applies to touring as well as... Um, Making records, so I just want to crack on and do things that i haven 't done yet, and as long as I feel that the um, that the the creative juices are flowing and the end result isn 't too embarrassing then i 'm going to carry on doing it and and that 's very evident in live touring because of course the pandemic uh, the eighteen months that we went through with not a single concert um that was a bit of a heavy toll, particularly for the band guys. I don't need to work, you know. I've, I've got investments and money stashed. I'm, you know, I'm I'm fine. I don't need to work again, but they do. And so my band and crew, you know, they, they had a real tough eighteen months. Well, still having a tough time now because although we did twenty shows in the latter part of last year, nowhere near enough to um, recoup their loss of earnings in the in the previous year and a half. So. You know, we we are we're all, I think, a little obsessed by having to crack on with it and make up for lost time. And particularly older people like me, older artists. Uh, um, some some of us may, it may the time may have come and gone. It's too late. You know, the, the narrow window opportunity, unfortunately, closed before uh, some artists could re-energize themselves and get back on the road. It's the time has gone by for some people, but. For those of us who are in reasonable health and mentally um, um, equipped to take on the, you know, the stress and the mental reality of, of what touring and performing is about, then, you know, I think we're all struck by the the inevitability. If we don't do it now, there might not be another chance. A year or two or five years from now, it, it could be over. So, I think that's an a a profound driving force, however desperate it sounds. There is a degree of desperation about it, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, some people are just desperate to have a good time and go and party with their friends down at the nightclub, and I'm desperate to get on the road and do some concerts and and uh, carry on with the record that I began 12 days ago. I think it's 12 days ago. Oh, no, 13. Yeah, um, 13 days ago on the January the 1st, as I've done with the last three or four records, January the 1st, 9 a.m., I told everybody that's when I'm starting the new project, and I did, and so I'm, uh, I'm now... Uh, uh, 13 days into that almost two weeks slightly hampered by the fact that I've been spending many hours a day doing press and promo but even today I managed to slip a couple of hours in uh, working up um, some refinements on a couple of um, song ideas and and I'm you know I'm now in a position where I can be pretty confident by the end of this month I'm going to be making some demos to send to the guys to the band in the band and hopefully in the the periods uh, that we have ahead of us when, although I hope we're on the road doing concert tours, we may end up still ending up uh, rescheduling yet again. And so we may have time to uh, start recording earlier than I might have otherwise. But, you know, there's another record in there for sure. And um, I know what it's called. I I have 12 pieces of music. I've written the first draft of all the lyrics. And no, I'm not going to tell anybody you or even my family or anybody, I'm, I'm not going to breathe a word about what, what the record is and the, what it's about. and It's it's too precarious, you know, because I always reserve the right to change my mind, you know, scrap it if necessary and start again. But, you know, it's, it's bad. It, to me, it's like bad luck to tell people too much about what you're doing.
3: I couldn't agree more. As soon as I tell people, then suddenly I can't do it. Now, you've also had adventures in salmon farming. How did that come about and how extensive was that?
4: Well, I've been a musician for quite a bit of my life, and you know, thought I did okay at doing that. But a little part of me, I suppose, it's um, you know, it's just it's just that feeling maybe that you you can turn your hand to something else, and you don't want to be too one dimensional in your in your life. So I I thought, well, there's probably a couple of other things that I'm interested in doing, and maybe I should give them a go. And I we, we we got involved in farming back in the uh, late 70s. But that was, you know, sheep and cattle and wheat and barley and oilseed rape and stuff, a bit bit a bit, bit, bit ordinary. Um, but I was bitten by the bug of aquaculture. I read about in a, actually in an airline magazine, I read a, an article about fish farming, this growing new industry, and I got quite interested in that idea, and I spent about a year trying to find uh um, some potential um, sites for marine aquaculture, which I was able to do, and uh, got it literally put not just a toe, but uh, the whole of a, both feet into the into the water to uh, get going on that. And it was a, an interesting parallel career for 20 years to come, and during which period of time we uh, my companies you know we were one of the major producers of smoked salmon but unlike all the other companies i was producing the um the broodstock the eggs the hatchery the freshwater part of salmon growth the marine ongrowing of the fish harvesting processing primary processing and then uh, and then finally the secondary processing and and for the most part smoked salmon which was going to some of the premier outlets in the uk and elsewhere in europe and so we weren't the biggest company, but we were the only company doing the whole thing, you know, from brood stock and eggs right the way through to the finished product on the super, supermarket shelves, and um, so there was quite a, you know, quite a, an interesting time learning about a whole new kind of form of business and a, a mixture of business and science and biology, but of course it had a, an unfortunate consequence in terms of its impact upon the marine environment the sourcing of feed for salmon and um and inevitably the use of uh, of chemicals to uh, to protect the fish from an antibiotics to protect the fish from uh, disease and um and we were very much in the spearhead spearheading of of trying to find the way to do that and not be impactful on the environment and not be overly reliant on on the artificial side of intensive farming. So we were, you know, we, we were quite active. I mean, I was quite engaged with people like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, trying to, you know, show them what it was we were doing and try and explain that this wasn't, you know, it wasn't a perfect industry, but we weren't as bad as we were being made out to be in some quarters. But in the end, the inevitability caught up with me in the uh, in the new millennium. I decided that I really there were a couple of things that I was finding uncomfortable about intensive aquaculture and I decided it was time to uh, call it a day so I sold off various arms of the uh, the business to different companies and um, turned my back on aquaculture forever but uh, you know I had 20 years of, of um, I would not say enjoyment uh, some of it was a bit scary because it was you know I was I was the investor the the sole shareholder I was taking all the risks and something that was very very risky to do. Um, and, um, you know, we nearly came a cropper a couple of times, but, um, I managed to uh, keep my shirt on and, um, and, uh, was able to get out of it without, um, any losses, which is all I ever really wanted to do. I mean, all the, any profits we ever made, I just turned it back into the company and we tried to use that for growth in the company rather than, rather than I didn't need the income personally. So it was just something to, um to do for the sake of doing it and for the four hundred people that were employed on our fish farms and and processing plants. But anyway, been there, done that, won't be going there again anytime soon. I went back to being a full time musician because i apart from anything else, you know, I felt I was being torn in two two different directions all the time with my available number of hours of waking um, energy. I thought I, I just should get on with being a musician again. That's where I started and where I should finish. So I will um, um, look back on my years in aquaculture with a, a degree of fondness and some achievement. But it's not, um, you know, it's not something I think I miss. If I if I ever if I ever thought about carrying on with it, it would have been in shellfish farming, which is really very very almost zero impact. Um, I'm you know I would have been a mussel farmer or perhaps an oyster farmer or a scallop farmer but um, um, anything that involves intensive feeding and uh, intensive um, husbandry where you're putting a lot of live animals into a small space and then having to bash them over the head or put toxic carbon monoxide into a bath to kill them and uh, yeah, I mean'm I'm, I'm not a I'm not a vegan I'm mostly vegetarian and i I'm one of those people who find it more increasingly difficult to justify eating something that had a face on it, um which is why I can carry on i think I could have carried on being a muscle farmer because hard as you hard as you may try, you don't see a pair of eyes um or any anguish uh, facing you um a lobster on the other hand you do, and a squid or an octopus, you certainly do, and um so there's some stuff I just wouldn't want to do anymore um I've personally killed thousands of fish and um at the time you know you got on and did it because you were i was working on the farm you know here and there, in a part-time capacity and i i um i i look back on the what would be seen as a rather callous attitude in 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 just in just uh, dispatching all these these beautiful creatures and uh turning them into um what was then still a, a relatively luxury food. Um, it, it, uh, I, I, I couldn't have carried on doing that. So I'm a bit of a softy. I'm am I'm a, a, a pussy cat. Partly because I like pussy cats, and partly because I, I actually really don't like uh, being involved in harming living creatures. It goes against my principles and my my spiritual beliefs. But uh, it's not to say that I never eat meat or never eat fish but I I do it very sparingly and um, try to um, you know I mean if eating meat is you know I would have a difficulty arguing for it but it it um, if it's if it's been extensively reared not intensively and it's been organically reared um, and it's had a, a good a good bit of time just sitting out there in the fields and chewing on grass and, and and feeling the sun on its back and and the wind in its hair or its fleece or whatever it might be, then I, I'm, it's marginally easier to argue for it than something that's grown up on concrete and, and never actually, never actually stepped out into the open air. Um, so, you know, I have a problem with Eating chicken because so often, of course, it's battery reared chicken, and I know from from experience as to what that looks like. Because we've occasionally taken in some uh, some chickens that have been unwanted by intensive chicken farms, and we've brought them home to to uh, rear and have another life at home with us. And, and miraculously, they all started laying again and <laughs> and and, um, and living on for another couple of years of, of a happy life being being able to go out and in when it pleased them and wander around a big space suitably fenced against the, the um, invading foxes and uh, dogs and cats that might otherwise do them harm. But, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a softie when it comes to animals, and um, I don't feel embarrassed to, to say that.
3: Not the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You have your opinion, for those who are fans of rock of uh, Jethro Tull, they can't understand it. There are dozens of acts that should not be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if Jethro Tull is not in it. What is your viewpoint of that?
4: Well, I you know, I appreciate that people who are the best will in the world, you know, would be campaigning or arguing for Jethro Tull being inducted into the Rock and Roll of, Hall of Fame, but... Well, you know, first of all, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened in Cleveland, I was one of the first people to, having been asked, I donated some memorabilia to, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we were in there right from the right from the get-go. Jethro Tell was present in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But if we mean being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that's a different matter. And I've always felt that The American Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a peculiarly American institution to celebrate American music and its influence, perhaps elsewhere in some cases. But it's about musical Americana, past, present, and hopefully in the future. And I don't believe that Jester Hotel really qualifies uh, in regard to that compared to many other artists. So I I think it would be a bit of an anomaly for Jester Hotel to be in inducted into the American Rock and Roll, rock and roll Hall of Fame. Uh, equally, there are some other bands who have been, I also don't think really belong in there for similar reasons. But, you know, there are there are many, many, many American acts who do deserve because they may not be very famous or um, necessarily have left so much behind them, but they they are still influential and important. And I don't think have been given the recognition that perhaps they they deserve... Um, as part of that big and evolving story of American music. So, um, you know, that's how I feel about it, but we could go into the uh, sort of mechanics of it, which is that I think um, the um, the board that make these decisions, I, I'm not sure if it still does, but it certainly did have a, a guy, um, Jan Wenner, who was the uh, an editor of Rolling Stone, who has a particular dislike of Jethro Tull, and I've heard from a number of sources that, you know, he... he Absolutely, would you know hate Jethro Tull and wouldn't dream of um, of, uh, of us being uh, uh, in there, and and that's fine. You know, I, I'm for different reasons. I kind of agree with him. You know, I don't know the man at all. Never met him, but you know, he's entitled to his opinion, and and um, that may be one of the reasons that um, that uh, it's never been uh, broached. But it would be difficult for me right now if, if somebody said, "Oh, guess what?" Um, you know, we want to induct you into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Are you uh, uh, are you available um, two months next Tuesday to come to L.A. and um, be be there? And I'm afraid I would have to say I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm supposed to be. Um, I'm supposed to be. Uh, 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 supposed to be playing in uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain that day. Or uh, oh no, I actually got to be in Moscow to do a show. Um, or maybe I'm just washing my hair. But the chances are I would not be inclined. Just as I didn't want to. Even if the record company had wanted to pay for the tickets for, to fly us over to LA for the Grammy ceremony, which they were convinced we wouldn't win, so there's no point in wasting their money. But even if they had, I wouldn't really have wanted to go. I, I just don't really like long-haul travel for the sake of it. I can I can be pressed, pushed, nudged onto an airplane if, if I'm actually going to work and it's the band and the crew and we're all trying to earn a living. Or they are. But uh, just for the fun and games of some award ceremony or something, I, I, my heart's not in it. I don't think I would want to go. And it would then be seen as very rude if I had to turn around and say, oh, you know what, I don't want to come. I don't want to do that. People would just think I was, it was sour grapes. I was just saying it because I was miffed. I was peeved that we'd not been previously asked. So I'm in a bit of a no-win situation there. But um, in telling you this, um, since you were listened to by a lot of people in the in the media and in the, the music business, it will hopefully serve as a warning to anybody in the both in the Grammy system and in the, um, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, there's no point in asking him because he's made it pretty clear he's not going to come.
3: <laughs> well, there are a number of acts who've finally been inducted who didn't come and uh most notably Todd Rundgren in this last year. But without going down that path, I must admit that I was anxious about doing this. I only met you once, not that you would ever remember. I think the show was at the Kodak, and it was after the show. I'm sophisticated enough to know it's very hard to come down, but you have a reputation as being somewhat difficult. So I am stunned that you're such a raconteur and you're so loquacious Now, to me, I could talk to you till the end of time. I've given you more time than I've given anybody else. But you also say you're a loner. So, is it that you don't suffer fools and there are certain people you'll talk to? Or is it really, you're talking to me, but you'd rather be alone?
4: Uh, Well, you know, uh, part of it, you know, uh, brutally, it's it's part of the job. You know, you've, you've got to overcome that desire for seclusion, you you get on with it, you know, you just have to get on with doing it and, and if you're going to do it, do it graciously, do it nicely, smile on the face, crack a joke and try to, try to mean it, try to be genuine, you know, so that's what I do. If I have to do meet and greets after a show, I groan, oh my God, it's one of those checking my schedule, oh, I'm going to meet and greet tonight. I've got to do these things. Oh, this Bob Lefset guy, I've heard of him, yeah. In fact, I mean, I do remember meeting him. My wife actually said to me today, said, oh, yeah, I remember meeting him backstage after a show. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm usually, I mean, you, you won't find that many people who said I was churlish or unfriendly or whatever. If I, if I say I'm going to say hello to somebody and meet somebody, I, 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 tr- I do my best, you know. But, it, but of course, privately, I'd probably just rather be, you know, I'd rather be heading back to the hotel and watching David Letterman, or, or, you know, getting to bed and going to sleep. You know, I'm 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 just not naturally a gregarious and chummy guy. But um, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try and do it properly, because um, I've met a couple of people who've been churlish and unfriendly, and and it's a, gr- a huge disappointment when you when you actually do get th- the impression that someone just is prepared to be really rude to you and cut you off just because um they're not in the mood and and so uh, i I' am aware of how that comes across because I feel pretty badly towards off the top of my head two or three famous people that uh, I actually said, Oh hi, really nice to meet you. I, Ian Anderson from Jethro Hotel, and they just turned their back on me and walked away and I'm whoops, what did I do <laughs> what did I, what did I do to upset you, van?" Mentioning no names, and um, so it's uh, it's you know I'm I'm aware of how much it kind of hurts if you if you're a fan of somebody and then they and they they treat you you know, in a offhand or a dismissive way is is quite hurtful. So I, don't, I I would hope there aren't too many people who would have that tale to tell about me. But there'll be a lot of people who will say, I oh, know he just doesn't like to meet people, he doesn't like to say hello. He likes to, you know, they're, they're probably right. But I wouldn't. Um, I would hope they wouldn't. It won't be talking about personal experience as much as anecdotal stuff that goes around. But you know, I'm I'm a pretty friendly guy to most people. When I'm you know when I when I have to do it, when I'm confronted, if it's a, somebody stops me in the street, if it's a fan, you know, and most of the time I'm I'm going to say hi, really nice to meet you, um, thank you, thanks for um, you know buying our records or do whatever. But if they then produce you know 20 albums from a from a a bag that I know are going to end up on eBay, then I'm probably going to lose my tolerance fairly quickly. And in these COVID times, and I've had the experience of this during the last few months, is it's really not a great time to be grabbing hold of me and and get, trying to get me to sign things or, or hug me while you're doing a selfie. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and I do not want to be the one who puts my band and crew out of work by getting COVID when I could avoid it. So... Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little more inclined to be avoiding people right at the moment, and that may go on for some months to come. So I've tried to say to people, please, you know, from a distance, I will, you know, thank you and, and give you a smile. And you won't see it because I'm wearing a mask, but I'm smiling at you, trust me. But uh, let's just leave it at that. Let's just not try to be too pressing um, about it.
3: But what about your personal life? How social are you in your personal life? Is there anybody you email with every day or talk to every day? Do you go to dinner parties, or are you really more of a homebody loner?
4: Well, I, I have a family. My, my my daughter's family and my son's family live, you know, pretty close by. You know, quarter of an hour, half an hour. So we see them probably two or three times a week. My son-in-law comes almost every day to take the dogs for a walk, uh, since he's 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 out of work even more than I am being a, a thespian and uh, pandemic and other things have meant it's been very difficult for him to do the things that he's should have been doing the last couple of years but um, yeah you know we're we, we pretty close as a family and uh, I, we have a few friends most of them long-standing friends not not in the music industry but um, but you know I mean I exchanged emails recently I, with who who was it um, uh, Mark Armand from uh, Soft Cell who's a big buddy, unlikely because of the age difference and the musical style difference, but but he, he's become a big friend in the last few years and we, we do concerts together, he's a guest of mine on our cathedral shows every year when we do fundraisers for churches and cathedrals and uh, Tony Iomi, who sent me you know an email at Christmas and he said, I must get together and have lunch and you, you say these things, but, you know, in, in reality, another year goes by, another two years go by, and you, you've you sort of forgotten to do it. But I guess, again, you know, as you're getting old, you're thinking, well, if I don't have lunch with Tony, one of us is going to pop off sometime soon. And, you know, it's not like we're lifelong friends, but we've known each other since 1968 a little bit, you know, and uh, he's one of those people that, you know, he's a good guy. And... um You know, other people, I suppose, um, uh, that I I don't really communicate with that that much, but there are a few people who are not necessarily musicians, but, you know, politicians or sports people or journalists and people that I, particularly at Christmas, you know, emails and best wishes fly back and forth for a few days of Christmas and New Year. Um, But it's... um, you know, it's it's just imbalance really. I suppose, probably true to say, I have less less um, less of a, a gregarious social life on a personal level than your average person. But it's not entirely absent. Um, it does uh, it does um, it does get tempered, however, by the fact that at this particular point in time, getting together for a boozy lunch is probably not a good idea. Um, since we and in your country were in the throes of the Omicron dynamic surge. And although there are some signs, at least where I live, um, that things are tapering off. I mean, our infection rate would appear to have gone down to just over half during the last two weeks, which from very high uh, levels, but it does appear to be seriously on the turn, and hopefully hospitalizations and deaths will soon follow. And maybe in you know a week or two, you'll see the same thing, at least in some U.S. states, uh, that it's beginning to drop. And there are signs of that already in Europe. I, Europe and the U.S. seem to have been about three or four weeks behind the U.K. Um, all the way through this. Um, and um, apart from Italy, which started off very badly, but um, we all caught up with that pretty quickly. But since then, Britain has tended to be one of the most infected countries with the highest uh, impact on on our lives. And uh, the rest have been, you know, three, four, five, six weeks behind. And so, and then some European countries are even further behind and Omicron has not even really got there yet. So, and they're countries with, you know, maybe 20, 30% vaccination rates. Uh, Boy, are they going to be in big trouble. But, um, you know, I think uh, in America, i spoke sent an email to my American agent a few days ago, suggesting some periods of time to come back and do a few shows in the USA in 2023, and I'd be reasonably confident that that can happen, as I'm hopeful, if not entirely confident, that, that most of the shows in 2022 will go ahead, albeit some of them will have been um, rescheduled. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about all of this, but at the same time, you've got to be realistic and be prepared to to go um, um begging the airlines for a refund on the tickets you bought that you now can't use. <laughs> I, I actually managed just two days ago, I finally got a refund from the very last flights that I'd not been refunded for. I finally came through. And, and they were from May 2020. <laughs> I finally got the refunds two days ago. <laughs> they actually paid up. Brilliant. you know. So there is some honor even amongst thieves.
3: I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, I had a flight like just after uh, COVID began. I was stunned when they gave me my money back, which was over a year. In any event, Ian, this has been wonderful. Listen to the tracks that were already out, Sad City Sisters. I really like, I look forward to seeing you live again. I'm sure even more you look forward to being on the road. Thanks so much for taking the time.
4: A great pleasure. Nice to nice to see you and talk to you. And um, great to see you are still uh, as active and um and there's much uh, a voice to be listened to amongst uh, fans and, uh, and the industry alike. So you keep at it and become filled with the same desperation as I am that it's not time to quit yet and there's more to do.
3: No, 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 no. I'm not quite as old as you, but I'm feeling it. Okay. And I'm not retired. You know, this is my one and only. So in any event, thanks so much. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex.
2: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
0: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.